outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. Your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon. This is episode number 239. And today on the show, we're chatting with Lee Ellis and Drew Carroll from Seek One Productions about the unbelievable deer hunting success they're having in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. Before we get into the main show, though, we need to do kind of a little intro to the intro, beginning first with a thank you to our partners at Lacrosse Boots for their support of this podcast. I've now worn my new pair of Alpha Burley Pro knee-high rubber boots on hunts this year in Montana, North Dakota, and Michigan. I've worn them in temperatures all the way up to the 90s and down into the 50s. I've crossed rivers, I've slid down canyons, I've climbed up trees, I've snuck through standing bean fields, and through all of that. I've been comfortable, I've been dry, and I've left as minimal of a scent print as I think you can get with a boot. So all in all, these boots have been great for me so far, and all the other lacrosse boots I've worn over the last, I don't know, 10, 15 plus years, they've been terrific as well. So all that's to say that if you are in the market for a new pair of deer hunting boots, my suggestion would be to point you in the direction of lacrossefootwear.com to check out the options they have available. In other news, as many of you know, Wired to Hunt is now a part of Meat Eater Inc. It is this new media company founded by Stephen Ranella, which I am now a part of too. And our big exciting announcement this week is that the newest season of the Meat Eater TV show has just launched as a Netflix original. And this is the first hunting show ever to be a Netflix original. So this is a really big deal for the hunting community and and also just, you know, a great show too. So it's neat. It's cool, especially that uh, I'm actually featured in this season as my caribou hunt from last year's in there. It's two episodes. I got to check them out a couple of days ago and I might be biased since I was in them, but I think they turned out incredibly well. Um, it was a pretty moving to get to watch that and, and relive that. So I'd encourage you guys to check out the new season. It's right up there on Netflix. It's Meat Eater with Steve Ranella. I think you'll enjoy it. And that now brings us to the real reason we're here today, which is to talk deer and specifically talk about suburban bow hunting in this episode. And this one I think is is really, really unique, and it's especially interesting, as these guys, Lee and Drew, 
they've developed a set of hunting strategies that have allowed them to target truly world-class deer right in the neighborhoods and suburbs of a major metro area. It's it's fascinating stuff. And whether you're targeting mature or, or quote-unquote big bucks yourself, or if you're simply trying to just learn to deer hunt and you'd be happy to put any deer in the freezer, I think there's something for you to learn here today. Now that said, if you're really excited about that content, if you want to skip our long rambling pregame show with my buddy Dan Johnson and me as we discuss our recent deer hunts and plans, you can fast forward about 25 minutes or so from here. But if you've got the time and the patience to delve into the life and adventures of myself and Dan Ninefingers Johnson, stick around because here we go. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today we're talking about something very different than the usual. We're talking suburban deer hunting. We're joined by the guys from Seek One Productions. These guys are out of Atlanta, Georgia. And they are they're actually hunting the suburbs of Atlanta, like neighborhoods, backyards. They're, they're killing some absolutely amazing deer down there. They're doing it on small properties with tons of people around, bizarre situations, um, and they're they're absolutely getting the job done. Have you seen any of their videos, Dan? Yeah, it's it's crazy what they do, and you know I'll give them credit they they do some pretty amazing things as far as access and strategy and these micro food plots and and cool things like that. But th- it's crazy watching a hunting video with a swing set in the background. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's a little uh, different than the, the cornfields right. and, and wide vistas that we sometimes get. Uh, but it, it's, it's pretty cool, though, because I feel like what these guys are doing kind of shows that you can still get out and hunt and have a great time, even if you don't have a big family farm or even if you don't live out in the country where there's a bunch of land. Um, you know, it comes back down to that whole access challenge, right? So many people are struggling to yep. pl- find places to hunt, um, or maybe they're not close to public land or whatever. Here's a group of folks that are showing you can get it done in the neighborhood. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of encouraging, I think for a lot of people. And I, I actually got my start bow hunting in this kind of scenario. Uh, I, th- I've, I know I've told the story before, but I started bow hunting on my parents' three acres that we lived on in a neighborhood. And the first deer I ever killed, I killed it right after two people and their dog walked through our property right in front of me. And I got out of the blind and I was all upset, huffing and puffing over to them. Um, and then, yeah, half hour later, here comes this little buck. So these guys, I think, have got some very interesting things to share. Like you said, interesting tactics. Um, interesting solutions to getting access. So I'm pumped about it. I'm excited to uh, have this conversation. So that's going to be, this is going to be a great podcast for anybody who maybe even is, hasn't been hunting or doesn't think they have the of deer where they live to go out and find it like these guys do. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is, it's a great entry point for people, you know? Just go and knock on some doors right where you live, and you might be able to hunt right there. So it's going to be interesting. And it's funny. I actually know a guy who, you know, he's got a hard time getting out to where he hunts. His main hunting property is like an hour and a half away. It's hard to get, you know, to find the time, right? You've got family obligations. And if only this guy had a little property right in the suburbs, right where he lived, and he could hunt, 
you know, just for an hour or two in between when he's got time with the family and the kids. If only that guy could hear this podcast and learn about it, he might actually hunt on opening day or the second day of the, of the season or the third day of the season. Do you know a guy like that, Dan? Yeah. <laughs> I know him. Oh, yeah, is, it, is, him. It, is it too soon? Is it is it too close that, to home? That, does that... Does that guy have three kids? He's got that three. guy have a, a wife who has two jobs too. <laughs> yeah, and only nine fingers. <laughs> and only nine fingers. Yep, that's yeah. me. <laughs> it's 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 been crazy though, dude. It's been crazy. Talk to me about it. I just, I mean, the weather was really good today. Is we're recording this on a uh, what a Wednesday, yeah, and. The, it's hot now, right? So I'm not going to go out tonight, but um, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, my wife has to work, okay? So that means I don't get to go out. However, I I'm, I think I'm going to be able to get out Saturday morning and Sunday morning okay? and just do some, some sneak attacks type stuff. But my big news is that this past weekend – and I broke, I broke a cardinal rule – but I had to. I right? wonder about rule that. Is, yeah. So my cardinal rule, dude, do not go into the timber until you're going to hunt it, you know, in September. Don't just leave it alone. But I haven't had that the opportunity to get out and go change up my trail cameras off the summer mineral sites and uh, to the pinch points, the fence crossings, the the travel corridors, you know, down, you know, the historically good places for the deer season. I haven't made that trail camera transition. So I said, I have, here's, here's my options. One is as these deer just straight up stop using the mineral stations, I'm going to have no intel going into my hunts, right? Because uh, I, you know, just like a lot of us, we use trail cameras to, you know, help us figure out where these deer are at. So I said, I'm going to run that risk. I'm going to go in and I'm going to do my trail camera switch the day, obviously the day before opening day. Now, knowing that I wasn't going to hunt for that farm for two weeks made me feel a little better. But what makes me feel really good is of some of the intel that I got off those trail cameras. Uh, on this last trip and the fact that now they're in a really good position for the upcoming season. So it's, I, I take it away as a win. I don't think I intruded too much. I mean, it, it has rained since then. So I think it just kind of was the perfect storm, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and you certainly are doing better than a lot. I mean, a lot of people are tempted to go in there like twice a week, checking their cameras and things like that. So yeah. making, making one quick check, I think you're, uh, you're doing all right. And to your point, sounds like you got some great intel that, that should inform those future hunts. So we, I gotta, I gotta hear, I mean, I sort of know about some exciting stuff, but I need to hear more. Right. So I got a picture of dork hardhorn on the 26th of September, right at last light. I mean, it, it would have been not shooting light, but just right at the tail end. Nice. So this is a first for him to be this, you know, it's a buck I've been watching since 2013, right? And now he's on my trail cameras a lot more and he's hard horned, right? So, and he's close to daylight. So we'll see what happens when I go and check my trail cameras probably next Friday after I get off work before I go in for that, that evening hunt of 
kind of what's, you know, what the area is telling me, but I have dork who as of the 26th is in the area. I have, uh, another buck that was the 23rd or 26th, who's definitely a shooter. He's a four year old 10 with junk. I posted a picture of him on, uh, social media and you passed he's on him a last shooter. Year, right? and, yep. Passed on him last year as a three year old, probably in the one fifties. He didn't oh. make too many. Yeah. He didn't make a big jump last year from, from last year to this year, except for he's got some more junk. He's just a little bit bigger, but. I'm saying that buck somewhere around the one low one fifties and he's got some, he's got split brows, uh, which is pretty cool with some, some junk coming off them, a couple, some junk coming off one of the antlers, uh, a couple, you know, I think I have maybe one or two four-year-olds that are still around. One's a, a pure like 140 class eight pointer. Um, uh, and then another 10 that's kind of in the area. And then, uh, you know, you heard me talk about the mega giant, you know, that, that really big one that, uh, I, I send you pictures of and, mm -hmm. uh, that we talked about on the last time, the last podcast we were able to, he stuck around all the way until that notorious shift, right. That we talk about the September shift when yep. they, when they, when the deer start to go hard horn. And then I didn't get a picture of him since, September 11th or 12th, I think it was. So no pictures of him. However, that same exact thing happened last year, right? Now, I want you to tell me this. Have you ever had a moment where you're flipping through last year's trail cameras and something clicked and you're like, oh my God, I know now what I need to do? You yeah. ever had a moment like that? I've had some similar things like that. Yeah. So I had that moment. And I think I know where this deer shifted to, right? There's no need for him to come up that far for where I have my trail cameras to where I now know, or I shouldn't say no, but where I think he's betting. I really think that he is in a really tight spot that is hard to get to if you're a lazy, hard access if you're a lazy hunter. And what I mean hard is if you're going to take the easy way in, but I think I can backdoor into his bedding area on a morning hunt and potentially catch him coming back into where I'm guessing he's bedding, right? Because last year I have a trail camera picture of him a couple times coming off of this ridge that I'm talking about right in front of a trail camera early, early October. So are you thinking you're going to go try to take a morning stab at him early? Yes. Uh, I'm going to say – Next week is showing a, a day or a day and a morning of an east wind before a front moves through. Potentially then, or two days after that, is a north northeast wind that I would need to backdoor it in there. Some it has to be something in the east. It can't be a southeast, but it can be a straight east, northeast, or north northeast. Maybe even straight north, depending on if I can get my tree stand in one of those um, in a tree that doesn't blow over top of the trail that I think he's going to use. And man, like that's all I've been thinking about since it happened, uh, two days ago, like flipping through those pictures. It's just like, click. Oh shit. Like I'm, why didn't I think of this before? Man, that, uh, that buck. Now I, I think it's important to point out, you know, we like to talk that we were typically just targeting 
age class type deer, mature deer. That's super challenging. Yeah. It's it's the way we usually like to do things. But sometimes you see a deer that just like captivates your imagination because of how unique or bizarre or cool that deer looks. And this deer, right? I mean, this is like a once in a lifetime deer, even for a guy like you out in Iowa. Don't you think? I mean, this is a special, yeah. special deer. Yeah, it's a special deer from a from a rack perspective, right? But I'm not really thinking at it like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I may be making my decisions based off that. The only, the only thing is, is that I, I was talking with a guy a while back and he goes, unless you're dedicated, dedicating yourself to one specific deer for an entire season, then you, then you are forced to be very cautious in your decision-making. However, guys like me and I, you know, I assume you, unless you're going all in on Holyfield, we, we put together a hit list and this guy is saying that if you ha- have a target deer, why not go in, go in aggressive to him? Because the worst thing that's going to happen is that you'll blow him out. You'll, 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 he won't show you'll fail or you'll get him. And if you fail, then you just go on to one of your other deer that you've, that you've put on your hit list, right? Or that, and you start that process all over again. Well, hey, let's locate one on trail camera, move in for the kill, and play cat and mouse with him until you blow him out. He doesn't show up or you get him. You know what I mean? So I'm taking this kind of new approach where I feel like I'm just going to be aggressive until I I fail so much that I learn or it works. Yeah, and I think I think the key is – if you have those options, right? You're in a situation Absolutely. where if this if this yes. goes under, you do have lots of other spots you can get into, lots of other deer you be interested in chasing. Um, you know, like a situation like the Holyfield property I'm on, there's only ever been like one mature buck a year that moves through there. So it's like if you don't kill that deer, if you educate that yep. deer, you're done for the year. So I I, I I've gotten yeah. my 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 thinking has shifted more and more to the point you're making that if you're in a scenario where you've got options, start swinging for the fences sometimes. And, uh, to your point, yeah. learn something from it. Even if you, you booger it out, but you probably learn something along the way. Um, but you know, you got to understand your situation. Sometimes that's a good idea. Sometimes you got to play it safe, but it's kind of fun to sometimes go for those home runs. I do not blame you for right. wanting I to think do that. The, the cool thing though, is that, it's also another thing that's forcing me to hunt this way is I only have one tree stand pre-hung for this year, only one. So I have other spots trimmed out and ready to go, but only one tree stand hung. So what that's telling me is yes, if I can't find a deer on trail camera, I'm going to, I might go sit on this particular, uh, downwind of a popular bedding area. Right. And I've always had good, um, the buck I met, uh, uh, the, that I hit the branch, right. And deflected the arrow last year. And mm-hmm. the, where I passed, um, where I passed the, the one buck last year that I got hardhorn pictures of that I posted on social media, that's all downwind of a, a popular bedding area where I have really good success. So that's kind of a backup plan uh, if I need it, but this is forcing me to make decisions based off deer move where the deer are at and not where historically they've been right so we all have those those mm-hmm. those uh 
tree stand locations that we have sitting there and every year they're going to be there because it's just a good area, but I don't have those hung right now. So, so now I can, I can make all those decisions on a macro level, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I, to the, I think we had this conversation a few weeks ago with Zach, kind of the idea of if you don't have stands up already, if you're walking in the ground or if you're hanging a stand that day, you by default have to pick the very best option for that specific moment in time because um, there's no easy thing to fall back on, which I think is a good thing. So yeah. I'm excited for you. That's uh, it, it's, really it's just exciting. one of these things where, dude, I've, I've harvested a deer the last two years. I'm in a place where I have a, I have a very unique and a buck that only shows up once every five, six, seven years, right? Uh, that kind of quality. So I'm going to go in after him and I'll, I'll make my decisions based off of what mother nature gives me for, uh, you know, conditions and sign and trail camera data. And I just make my decisions based off that. And if nothing happens, man, I tried. And if, uh, it happens, uh, you'll get a phone call, bud. (laughs) (laughs) Holy smoke. I I hope you FaceTime me. I want to see that face when that happens. That deer is insane. That deer is, I don't know, but again, like we always say, getting pictures is the easy part. It is. It's a fun part, but it's the easy part. It's fun. Um, man, I know that you've been in the timber or in the stand, right? Yes. Yes. I've got out twice now, you know, uh, today's the third. So I hunted the first and the second, um, nothing too terribly exciting to report on except that, you know, the first night speaking of the Holy field scenario I mentioned before, I wanted to go in and hunt this property once where Holyfield is, hopefully is, you know, I still don't have a hundred percent confirmation. I've seen this buck in the summer, but I just don't know for sure if it was him or not. I don't have pictures of him, of any, of any mature bucks yet. Um, but there's only been one camera that I've been able to check. So there's, there's stuff still out there that I don't know about, but I'm kind of operating right now on the assumption that he's still alive. So I went into this one spot. It's kind of like my, I almost always, if I've got the right wind, I usually hunt here on opening day. The last four years I've done that because it's, it's easy to get to it's low impact, but it's a great early season spot. You know, this year there's my oats and brassica food plot, a little clover plot on the other side of it. The tree I'm sitting in is an oak tree that was dropping a ton of acorns this year. And last year I put in a tiny water hole underneath the two. So I had all of that in this little like acre and a half area. Um, so really, really high attraction value, and it's tight to this area that Holyfield traditionally is bedded. So it was worth a shot. Try to get in there. I had a great wind for it, and snuck in there. Was feeling pretty good about it. A bunch of does were moving through. There was kind of a cool breeze. It was cloudy. It was cooling down. Um, bunch of deer feeding around me, but the one, you know, this happens all the time. The one direction that you don't want a deer to go, where they're least likely to go, this one doe did and she got a whiff of me that she didn't like and she blew up and sent the field clearing out. You know, it's and speaking of that, something I've noticed the last year or two is, you know, I've been using, you know, I've been doing all my basic scent control type stuff. And then maybe five years ago or six years ago, I started using an Ozonics machine and then maybe two, maybe three years ago, I started using nose jammer. Yeah. And right when I started doing those things, it felt like 
magic. Like these deer were coming downwind of me and they were just kind of smelling a little something, but then kept on going. And then last year I felt like they were getting a little more impact. Like they were coming downwind and like, eh, I don't like this as much as I used to. And then now this year this happens. I wonder, and I'm not saying this is the case, but I'm starting to wonder right. if these deer that have been on this farm a long time, and I've been hunting this property for years now using this stuff, if they are starting to associate either the ozone smell or the nose jammer in situation or something, if they're starting to associate that with human danger now, because there's been enough situations where they've smelled that and then seen a person or smelt a little bit of me or something like that. I'm wondering if my little secret sauce is starting to become a negative association for him. Um, I don't know. I'm not saying that's the case, but I'm just wondering it now because I'm not getting away with as many downwind encounters as I used to. And I haven't changed anything. Um, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's nature, right? If something burns you a couple times, it's nature's way of educating themselves on, you know, how many times do you think it took the early human to figure out that you can't touch fire, buddy? Right. You know what I mean? Like until you learn that you can't touch fire and it has to happen within all shapes and forms of life. So I think, I think you're a hundred percent right. I think there could be, if you're using it too much because you have a smaller property, right? Yes. Yep. You take the proper, you take the proper um, access routes in, you take the proper scent precautions, but at the same time, you're using that more on a smaller property than let's say someone like myself who has a bigger property and may be using the same things, but just distributed over more acres. Yeah. I mean, all of my impact on this little property is within like probably 20 acres. There's really only maybe 20, maybe even less. That's actually huntable ground. So even though I'm not hunting it very often, when I do hunt, it's all concentrated in this relatively small area that I'm limited to. And that's happened, you know, year after year after year. And some of these old does, you know, that have been here five, six, seven years, they've encountered that now over and over. So it's, it's something I'm going to pay attention to more this year. You know, I, I went out last night to a different farm, new property, and I had deer come straight downwind. So they had, I was doing nothing different. I washed my clothes the same way. I showered the same way. I, I did all the same scent control. I used the ozonics, used the nose jammer, same thing. These deer come downwind to me, just like what happened to me on opening night. But these deer act completely oblivious. They're like, oh, that's something, but I don't care. And they just waltzed on through. Completely different reaction. Um, so it's just kind of got the question marks popping up over my head. And um, we'll see how the rest of the year goes. But that's something I've noticed and, um, and I guess speaking to that second night, I went to this new property, I got permission on, um, kind of just want to do an observation sit just on the edge, just trying to, I want to learn more about this property before I start diving in, sw- swinging for any home runs and, uh, saw a decent number of deer, a couple young bucks, beautiful sit. Um, but nothing too crazy. So that was kind of how my season started. It was fun. I want to check some more cameras on the Holyfield property, try to figure out if this guy is still around. Um, and I'm just going to kind of keep on keeping on over the next few weeks, taking a few low impact hunts, going to do some public land dabbling, um, test out the saddle some more on some of these public land areas, get aggressive on some public land on days where I don't want to go to my good spot. And, uh, that's, that's what I've got up my sleeve for the next week, week and a half until things get, uh, more interesting. So, 
You know how you solve that uh, dough who keeps blowing at your problem, right? Yeah, I do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and if that's the one thing is I need to figure out if Holyfield's still alive or not. Because if he's not alive, there's no other bucks on this farm that I've seen on camera yet that are like for sure mature bucks. Um, I just need to get on doe patrol if that's the case and, and just yeah. spend the season trying to trying to manage that doe population. Because that's the other thing about this spot. It's a super small property. I've got very limited options, but they're just a boatload of does. Um, I never kill as many does as I probably should. I try to kill as many. I try to invite some friends over to, to take some, but and I'm sure I should be doing better. And the neighbors aren't doing anything for the most part. So there's just so many deer. You, you can't hardly get anywhere where there's not going to be some deer on all sides of you. And that makes for challenging hunting scenarios. So maybe, you know, if the worst case scenario is true and Holy Field disappeared, the silver lining is that I can maybe finally get uh, get a handle on the doe situation and uh, see what comes next. So yeah, absolutely. So why? Let me ask you this question before we split. Why aren't you just sitting back and checking trail cameras? Right, you're hunting a ghost right now. Yeah, and I mean that's that's my plan for that property is to I was going to hunt it opening night, and then I'm not going to hunt it again till Halloween. Unless I gotcha. okay. um, unless I get a picture or a sighting of him. So those other right. hunts I'm talking about, that'll be on this new property. That'll be on public land or that'll be up on my northern Michigan deer camp property. Um, Bingo. Yeah. So the Holyfield spot is off limits now unless I get something that screams out, you got to start hunting him now. So. Yeah. Well, I hope I, I, I hope he shows up out of nowhere again and uh, – you can finally put this to rest. Either he doesn't show up this year at all or he, you know, or you kill him or you find that someone else kills him because I've had bucks in my head that have lingered. Right. And it's always like you can't make a proper decision while that, that particular buck is lingering. Yeah. Yeah. I just need some closure on this, this whole deal. You know, it's, it's funny hunting can be so many different things to different people at different points in like their hunting journey, you know? And yeah. when you get to that point where you want the hunt to be in such a specific way that you are just trying to target one buck, or at least most of your energy is going towards that one buck, it can be a lot of fun, but it can also, we've, we've had this conversation many times. It can also be like mentally draining or emotionally draining or something like that. So I am, I'm ready to put this thing to bed one way or another and um, and kind of move on to some different things. So I'm hoping it'll be a happy ending, but if it's not, I'm uh, ready to see what's behind the next uh, the next hill too. Right. So. Oh, cool, man. Well, I'm rooting for you. I appreciate it. I'm rooting for you too. I, uh, I'm hoping that Gnarly Charlie will cooperate and uh, show yeah. up for you here soon. So it, next week. It would be nice. Next week we'll have to have a – a more in-depth lowdown of, of how you're hunting this deer and, and hopefully you'll have a hunting bite. Do you think that this weekend might be one of those days you can hunt? Um, and, I'll have to, no, not this weekend. Uh, because number one, I don't think I'm going to get the wind I need. And number two, uh, my wife has to work. So I'm, I'm stuck to the local farm. Gotcha. Okay. Well, so. then next week, maybe we can, get more in depth on how we're going to tackle the gnarly Charlie dilemma. And, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm excited. Well, thank you, sir. I know you got to bounce, but, um, 
we're going to move on to get the Suburban Bowhunter guys, Seek One Productions on the line here, talk about some big bucks in Atlanta, Georgia. Real quick before we do that, we need to take a second and thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. And I want to give a plug for another one of their YouTube videos. They're a part of that Land Beat video series of theirs. Their most recent one is with Dan Perez. Dan Perez is the co-founder of Whitetail Properties. And what he talks about in this quick video are a few different things you can do before buying a piece of property to help you understand what kind of income potential is there. You know, how how much money could you get from leasing it out to a farmer or from different some different kinds of government programs that will pay you for certain habitat and projects and whatnot. Very interesting. Some good things to think about before dropping some some coin on a potential hunting property or recreational property and a quick watch. So head on over to the Whitetail Properties YouTube channel. They have lots of videos with helpful information, even some hunts now. This one, though, if you want to check it out, it's called Considerations When Buying Land. And if you want more information about Whitetail Properties and the land they have listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com. All right, with me now on the line, I've got Lee and Drew from Seek One Productions. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I appreciate taking the time. I um, I I I just recently kind of discovered you guys because my producer Spencer Newharth, who puts together my Rut Radio miniseries for Wired Hunt, he had I think it was Lee. I think he had you on as a contributor a few weeks ago. And I listened to that, and I was really interested in what you had to say. And so I was like, i got to go check these guys out. So then I went and I pulled up your YouTube channel, and I started looking at these videos, started seeing what you guys were up to, and I kind of had my mind blown. You guys kind of <laughs> kind of shocked me with what you're doing down there in Atlanta. Um, so I'm excited. I guess that's my long way of saying this is going to be a really interesting conversation. I'm glad we're doing it. Um, and I guess to get started, I'd like to hear just a real quick like Cliff Notes intro as to who you guys are and what you're doing. Um, I don't know, Lee, do you want to kick things off and just kind of give us a quick overview of, of who, who you are, how you got involved with this? Yeah, so um, I think uh, Drew and I both pretty much started at the exact same time. We were buddies and middle school and um he had a family farm that you know we'd go to on just kind of rare occasion um but we were so busy with school and sports and stuff that we really never got to get out there so he drew's the one that kind of got me introduced to hunting um and then it was you know just kind of us taking notice of what was around us just driving to and from school and uh i know that drew and i were fishing a pond one day in like a like a creek bottom and i i mean i at this time i didn't really know anything about hunting but drew knew what you know rubs and scrapes were and stuff and this place was just like destroyed um and so we were just like man there's there's got to be like some pretty good deer here we'd see him like driving down the roads and stuff and um we just kind of started from there i mean had literally had no clue what we were doing at 16 uh, trying to get access to, um, you know, places to hunt, but, uh, you know, we'll kind of dive into some stories later, but like, it, I mean, it took us a long time, finally got some access to some places and put some cameras out and kind of stumbled on this little hidden gym that was around us the whole time and never even really knew it. 
and uh you know before we know it like our first year hunting we've got like you know just some freaking stud you know 150 plus just mature deer that we're chasing you know minutes from our house so um it's it, i don't know it was just kind of a undiscovered little secret didn't really see it coming kind of thing and it was it just kind of took off from there we've been doing it for 12 years and um through kind of approached the idea of i guess this was 2000 what was when did we hunt charlie drew uh i think it was 2014 pretty sure charlie was yeah probably 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 the year that yeah that kind of i guess originally grabbed some attention because it this deer was just like stupid big. Um, and Drew was like, we need to film this. I mean, the, the stories that we've had prior to then, you just got to see to believe of how kind of crazy they are. And Drew was like, we got to film and tell the story. And so it's kind of Drew's idea. He pretty much gave up his whole season just to film me, uh, and the story of hunting this deer we called Charlie and, um, ended up killing that deer on camera and, put a little trailer together and send it out there. And it, that's what kind of got our name out there. So ever since then, we've been uh, filming our hunts and trying to tell the stories of chasing these monster bucks in the suburbs. Yeah. What would you add, Drew? Um, I mean, he pretty much covered it high level. Um, so yeah, I mean, we, we both live basically it's considered the suburbs of Atlanta. So we're, we both live outside the the perimeter, which would be um, probably a 20 minute drive from like the, the real heart of the city, but we're still, you know, surrounded by neighborhoods and commercial property and stuff like that. So um, to find a block of woods over 10 acres is pretty rare. I mean, there's, there's some big blocks kind of scattered throughout and along the river. Um, but we are like in the heart of the suburbs. So when we say suburban hunting, it's not like we're kind of on the outskirts of these neighborhoods. Like we are in the, uh, in the Creek bottoms and river bottoms between these, these houses. So yeah, we, we were just fortunate enough to grow up in probably the best areas of the entire state as far as genetics go and, and deer population. So we kind of just, as the, deer population grew down here we just kind of started to take notice and uh and took advantage of it and that's how we didn't i don't think either of us bow hunted before we found that little creek bottom that little that six acre block of woods we both no i didn't even have that property um so that's that's kind of how it kicked off and then we hunted that spot for i don't know probably four four or five years before we started to have to branch out i mean that spot was unbelievable it was like a gateway um into like a larger area of just different pockets of wood so we in the rut we'd have just bucks that we have never seen just piling through there and lee killed most of them (laughs) (laughs) uh, lee lee went on a a heater for about four or five years (laughs) um and then i think he was the first one to kind of start branching out um and started just knocking on doors in other areas and realizing that, Hey, it's working at this spot here. Why won't it work, you know, 10 miles away, um, at this other spot that I found on, on Google maps. Um, and so, you know, that just kind of escalated and escalated. And I mean, before you know it, we were knocking on hundreds and hundreds of doors every off season, just searching for, uh, 
for a mature buck. So, and, and then, um, I think it was, it was the year that Donnie Vincent came out with the rivers divide yep. is when, when I was like, dang, that's pretty cool. I want to like the, the story of Steve is very, very similar to the stories that we're having on these bucks. Um, like I want to, I want to buy a camera and, and film this. So, uh, that was, that was a big motivation. And then just kind of watching Heartland bow hunter progress and they're just, um, their, their quality and their like cinematic style. That was a big motivator too. So bought a camera that year and the very first deer that we ever filmed, the very first video that I've ever made in my life was a, a absolute monster. It was, what is it, a nine pointer early with, I think he was 182 inches or something. And yeah. the frame on this deer is just insane. Like it, it looks like it's from a high fence. <laughs> People were saying that Lee shot it from a high fence, shot it out of like a helicopter. And I don't know, all these there was like, yeah, it was just like, there's no way that came from Atlanta. People were just like, there's no way. Well, well, that's the thing. I feel like, most people probably even still don't really understand what you're talking about as far as the quality of deer that you're seeing and in, in hunting and killing in the suburbs here. I mean, you guys are, cons- and correct me if I'm wrong here, but from what I've, what I've seen, you're consistently getting on mature bucks and, and big, like crazy non-typical bucks too, like booners and a 200, mm-hmm. at least one 200 inch plus buck, right? Yeah, we've, yeah. we've had the chance to hunt for, well, to be determined, possibly four now, including this year. But uh, three 200, we've, we've had a chance to hunt three 200-inch deer uh, in Atlanta over the years. Plus, um, well, if you count Jay, if you count Jay, that's another one. Because Jay oh, has yeah. this, actually has the state record non-typical, which is like gross, 230. Like yeah, something crazy. Wow. And this is happening in neighborhoods and behind people's houses. I mean, I feel like yeah. this is this is just un, <laughs> unlike what any anyone thinks is possible. Um, it's pretty remarkable. What? So, so why do you think that this area is so good? And I guess that's my first question. Why do you think that you're finding deer of this age and quality? And then number two, is that unique just to this area in Atlanta, or are there? quality deer hunting opportunities like this in suburbs of other big cities too, do you think? Uh, so there, I think there's a lot of things going on in Atlanta that, that make it what it is. Um, the first is, and I don't, I don't know if like the, the actual facts behind this, but there used to be like no deer in Atlanta. Um, and I know that, you know, few decades ago they they imported deer i've always heard been told from like wisconsin and that that's kind of the native genetic that, that's kind of spread throughout atlanta because some of these deer you look at and you're like yeah there's there's no way that that's a native georgia deer with just like the heavy mass and just dark racks and you know some of the crazy frames and non-typicals that we're seeing um so i've, I've always been told that it's been like a wisconsin strain genetic that's running around atlanta um so you combine good genetics with just an absolute buffet of food. They have, in the summertime, we've got, the, the biggest thing we've discovered, and this is something we discovered probably three years ago with Charlie, was we had no idea where this deer spent his summertime. You know, when the when October hit and the deer moving around is when we'd always get him on camera. But as far as, like, 
spring and summer and early fall, we had no idea where this deer was. Um, and so we just started searching and searching and searching. We found him in a kudzu patch in the summertime. Do you, do you know what kudzu is? You know, I, I didn't, I hadn't heard of it until I heard you talk about it a little bit on the radio episode a couple of weeks ago, but, but please yeah. talk about it because I'm sure most people aren't familiar or some aren't. Drew's the botanist, so I'll let him, I'll let him take over. <laughs> yeah. explaining I got to exactly get being a botanist <laughs> on the last podcast. But yeah, kudzu is basically, uh, it's basically a, it's like a soybean. It's, it's really a, a lab lab. Um, so just a, a perennial type soybean leafy plant that just grows in a vine and it's invasive. I think it's from like Japan or something. And it just grows and all of these, like on roadsides and basically anywhere it can take hold, it just starts growing and it's impossible to get rid of, but it's like 20 or 22% protein in the leaves and just grows. Uh, it, it can grow like five to I mean, six feet high. So these deer can just bed down. It grows in it into the jungle. Yeah. yeah. It grows into a jungle. It's just like a perfect habitat for them. So that's kind of what we discovered is like this, this kudzu and it, it, I think it was originally introduced for like, you know, help helping to control like erosion along roadways and stuff. Um, but it's just like, it grows so fast that it's just like moved into, you know, places it shouldn't be. And it's just taken over little pockets of woods. And it's like these bucks in the summertime will pile into these kudzu patches because it's just a buffet. They'll, when we were filming and watching Charlie, he would get up, you know, 10 times a day, feet around for a few minutes, lay right back down, and he would just completely disappear. And he was actually in the middle of an apartment complex, probably 10 acres in the middle of the apartment complex, and nobody knew that deer was there until, like, they saw Drew and I, like, standing on people's decks and stuff with the camera lens and whatnot. And they were like, oh, yeah, I, I guess there are deer back here. Huh. And they were looking at, like, a 180-inch deer. Don't really care. Um <laughs> So the, their forage in the summertime with kudzu and things like that is just, you know, they have all they could possibly eat. And we've seen some really big bucks grow out, growing out in kudzu. And then we have so many hardwoods. I mean, I was checking a camera yesterday and I'm just like walking on top of white oaks on the ground, acorns. And, um, so between that and then, you know, as, uh, kind of the, the hard winter rolls around, <laughs> they really move into people's landscaping and stuff um, and start eating that. So kind of through all, all, all through all parts of the year, they've got all the food they could possibly want. So do you think then to, to that second part of the question, do you feel that, you know, the suburbs of Detroit or the suburbs of, Cleveland or the suburbs of name any other big city across the country. Do you think there's opportunities like this where there's probably great food sources? There probably are these pockets of timber and creek drainages and things like that where these deer are getting in there, getting well fed and, and aren't being hunted as much like these deer are? Is this does this translate to other places? Yeah, de sure. it definitely does. And that's part of what we're doing this year, uh, with our videos is we're we've branched out to Nashville, Tennessee, which that kind of got put on the map a couple, I guess, two years ago when someone killed a uh, world record, non-typical, like just outside of Nashville. So we get messages all the time from people in different cities saying, 
it's like so cool to watch other people doing exactly what we're doing um in other cities like you guys should come up here and, and check out the deer and in nashville or cincinnati or dc or i mean you name it there's probably 10 different cities that we've gotten messages from so yeah i mean it's definitely definitely something that's going on in other cities i think for a long time i mean even here in atlanta like it was kept a secret and for good reason we i mean we've been accused of ruining that secret which is kind of true but um (laughs) I, i think it's like now that it's kind of coming out with us and i mean there there are other people that are that are doing it in other cities that have kind of publicized it but it's just it's coming to light a lot more in recent years than it than it has been um so i, I think it's, it's exploding I think hearing, yeah i think you'll start hearing more and more people that are like yeah i've been doing this forever i've killed these giant deer in the suburbs of wherever um and i, I mean I, I don't think so one thing that's like unique about atlanta is that the rest of georgia doesn't necessarily have really big deer I mean, there are pockets of good genetics, um, you know, scattered throughout the state, but as a whole, it's not known as a big buck state, but Atlanta is different. So that's like, that draws people in from outside of the city to just come in, to come in and just try to find these big deer. All, all <laughs> kind of just, Atlanta. Yeah. It just kind of, it just makes it that much more um, in the spotlight. Whereas if you go out to, you know, I don't know, Ohio or something, like there's big deer throughout the, most of the state. So Cincinnati is not going to necessarily stand out as much. Um, so, I mean, as with anywhere, the, it has to have the genetics to, uh, to be able to produce. But a lot of times in these suburban environments, you're going to get, if you have the genetics, you could also have the, the lack of hunting pressure. So the deer are going to get older and bigger. Yeah. So is that something that you pretty <laughs> consistently see is that, there are, my assumption is a lot of times there's going to be areas that just are not getting hunted that are very different than a lot of spots, maybe in the more rural spot areas where there's, at least in most states, a significant amount of pressure. So you're seeing deer that just reach more consistent age, older age classes. Is that something that's kind of been the trend, right? These deer are just getting age on them and that's why they're... That, that, that used to be the case. It's not anymore though. Uh, yeah. That, so kind of backtracking a little bit that spot that first spot that drew our fish in that pond at and there's just like scrapes and rubs everywhere that's where we ended up getting permission and it was like you know we we had three four five shooters in there a year in november and i don't think either of us have hunted that spot in six years because that area has become very popular and so there's a lot there's so many hunters now it is so hard to find a mature deer in that area anymore because mm-hmm. you know, here's the thing like you know our genetics are so good that our two and three year olds are you know pope and young type deer wow and someone that's you know never killed a pope and young especially with a you know with a bow in their hand it's just like you know how can, how can you blame them for not passing up that three-year-old you know 130 inch deer that comes walking by them when they've never killed a deer like that so yeah there's so many people getting into it and there's some areas that are definitely way more popular than others that it has really caused us to kind of adapt and, and, and completely abandon areas um, and really try and get into places that are overlooked uh, that aren't being hunted as much where you do find a deer of that, you know, right age class. Um, 
And, you know, for us, we really like to try and find a deer that's at, at the minimum five. Um, and the deer that, that we killed last year, uh, we named Zeus. We think he was like nine. Wow. And he, and that was the biggest, that's the biggest he ever was. So we have shed antlers off of him from when he was eight and he scored 193. And then we have, um, you know, the next year we killed him and we, I think we green scored him at like 203, something like that. Wow. <laughs> uh, so that's from nuts. eight to nine, he put on 10 inches. Um, so yeah, I mean, to, to, to answer your question, yes, there are definitely still places where, and it takes a long time to find them where deer are getting to the right age, but this is something that is becoming so popular that, you know, sometimes you've got 10 or 15 guys hunting the same deer. So there's a lot more deer being shot and it's just really, it's in some of these areas where it's more popular, it's really hard to find, you know, the, the right age class, but. Um, I think everything has to do with obviously nutrition, genetics, but age is also super, super important. We, we watch deer, you know, for some time, Drew's hunting a deer right now called Falco that I think he's had on camera for five years. And so yeah. we watch a, a lot of deer. Years. Yeah. We watch a lot of deer from one and a half and two and a half and just kind of keep watching them, keep watching them, keep watching them until they're at that right age uh, to go hunt. It's so cool to be able to have that kind of opportunity where you do have those deer that make it year after year and get to get to watch them and follow them. It's I feel like for for sometimes people on the outside of this kind of little tight community that gets really into the whitetail stuff or people that haven't had that kind of chance, they look at it as kind of bizarre that you might name a deer or that you might watch deer year <laughs> after year. But um, but as you guys obviously know, since you've been a part of this and I've been fortunate to have some opportunities like this too. It's so interesting to be able to take the challenge of hunting and ramp that challenge up to level 12 when you're targeting that one deer and learning that one deer's habits and that one deer's behavior and his home range and how he moves between places and why he does what he does. I mean, at least for someone like me, and I'm sure you guys too, who's fascinated by these animals, that is like the ultimate. And uh, it's it's so cool to be able to see that happening in places like this in the city that I think most people would just assume that you couldn't do this. And what I, what I love about it, and I think you and me, Lee, were talking about this just a little bit yesterday, is the fact that I feel like this idea of, of the opportunities available in the suburbs and around the city, it opens up the doors of hunting to so many new people that maybe didn't think they could find a place to hunt. You've got these new people coming into the hunting world that want to get started. They live in town. They don't have friends or family that live out in the country with big farms. And they're thinking, well, yeah, I like the idea of hunting. It seems like a cool thing. Joe Rogan's been talking about it, and I'm intrigued. Uh, but where the heck do I go? I'm not going to drive two hours in the middle of nowhere and knock on a farmer's door in my penny loafers. Um, but, 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 but I think if they, if they see or hear about what people like you guys are doing, right in town, they're like, oh, hey, I could drive 10 minutes down the road and knock on these doors in my neighborhood, and maybe there's a three-acre piece I could hunt, and that actually could work. I feel like this is just, it's such an important idea to get out there at this time when, when we need to help bring in this new group of hunters. So, so I guess my rambling leads me to this then. Let's talk about how you do this, because if someone's listening and they're intrigued and they want to try to put this into play in their own town, um, I feel like we need to start at where you start. So 
when you're trying right, to find honest, a new place? You might, you might have to twist my arm a little bit on this one, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do my best. <laughs> um, so, so when you're getting started in a new area, maybe you can use the Tennessee uh, situation as an example or, or something you're doing there in Atlanta. I guess first, like, what are you looking for when trying to find a place that's worth hunting? You know, when at this point, how do you choose the properties that you're interested in hunting? And then where do you go from there? I think, I think Nashville actually is a really good example. I mean, you can, you can watch our first episode that was released a couple of weeks ago. We have like a whole segment on just before we even go up there for the first time, we are looking at maps and networking and all of that before we even put a boot on the ground. So I think the, the first step is, I mean, just, talking to everybody you possibly can because going out there blind and not knowing where certain pockets of genetics or, I mean, there's certain areas of Atlanta and Nashville where there's not, there's no deer. And then you go, you know, a couple miles away and there's a ton of deer. So just getting out there and talking to as many people as possible to figure out the general area first to start, I think is a a good first step. Um, And then just, you know, pulling up, pulling up maps. We, uh, we use a couple different maps. Um, one, we just use, you know, Google maps and aerial view just to kind of give a sweeping view of different pockets of woods. And then we'll kind of dive in deeper with real estate maps that show, um, property lines and owners names and addresses and phone numbers and things like that. So <laughs> we'll kind of figure out, you know, the areas that, that, uh, have big blocks of woods that may be connected together by river bottoms or creek bottoms. So these deer can actually roam around during the season. And then we'll actually look at property lines and we'll look for bigger properties that we can kind of string together. So like, I mean, some areas the government or the city owns most of the blocks of woods and uh, the properties are only, you know, a half acre. Um, And then other areas you have, you know, four and five acre properties um with houses on them just like making up a huge area so those are the types of areas we like to focus on just because it's so much easier to get permission and you actually have room to move around um but i think what's cool about our nashville video is that you know atlanta we've been doing this for so long that we've kind of established our network and our spots and stuff yeah just kind of self-sustaining beast at this point We're, we're always still looking for new areas uh, and whatnot, new places to, to get access to. But for the most part, you know, we've, we've done a lot of our groundwork. What's cool about Nashville is that we've never been there before. So you really got to see, you know, from start to finish of, of how we do it. And kind of like Drew said, it's a lot of studying maps, but I think, I think the biggest thing is, uh, and this will kind of cover a couple of different categories is to not be afraid. The reason I say that is, uh, one, you just, you, you need to not be afraid to talk to whoever it is. doesn't matter who it is about just bringing up, you know, your interest in hunting and, and blah, 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 because that person may let you hunt. They may have a, a place in their backyard to let you hunt. If not them, they may have a family friend or a family member that says, Oh yeah, this guy sees deer all the time. Oh, you know, you'd be amazed at, how many times you, you get people talking and they're like, Oh, this person said they saw a huge buck, you know, last yeah. year. And you're like, and where was that? <laughs> so, and then, and then on top of that, 
you know, even if, if you're looking at an area or you've been told as a deer at a certain area, you know, some of these deer hide in really small overlooked places. Now they, they travel for miles, but sometimes they're traveling through tiny little fingers. And so, you know, if you get a spot and you walk back there and you're kind of like, Oh, you know, I don't, I don't know, stick a camera out because you never know what's going to be there. I mean, we run, I think we're running like 30 or 40 cameras in Atlanta. I think we've been running about 10 or 15 in Nashville. And so it's like the more cameras you have out and, and covering a wider grid, you're going to find something. And then you can kind of mm -hmm. hone in on that deer. That's when it kind of comes into not being afraid to start just pounding the pavement and knocking on doors like crazy. Yeah. I think a lot of people get really afraid they just kind of built it up in their head that it's like this big intimidating thing to knock on some stranger's door and, and ask them to bow hunt. But, um, once you just like get the confidence to do it a few times, you get more comfortable with it and you kind of develop your own language and develop your style of, of your approach and everything like that. And you just gain more confidence and more confidence and more confidence the more you do it. So that's, that's kind of why I say like, don't be afraid to just talk to people and put cameras out in areas, even if it doesn't look great. And, you know, don't be afraid to go start knocking on doors. Yeah. Yeah. I found in my own experience that it's like a snowball effect. That first door you knock on is mm -hmm. a little intimidating and the second door is a little bit better and the third door is a little better. And then it just gets better and better as you roll down the hill, building that oh, it momentum. Was, it was a complete disaster for us when we were 16. Like I said, <laughs> complete disaster for us knocking on doors, trying to get one place to hunt. I mean, we, we had no clue what to say. We were probably stuttering, stuttering our words. I think people can really see right through that. They're like, hey, this, this, this is probably this guy's first time doing this. He doesn't really, you know, he's not really confident in what he's saying. And then it's just going to make that owner feel uneasy about it, the mm -hmm. whole situation. So um, let's talk about that permission process because, to your point, there's if you're going into this process having not done before, there's a lot of stumbling blocks along the way. Um, I think from what I've seen and heard and just from knowing how my own process has developed, I'm sure you guys kind of have a, a game plan when it comes to how you ask for permission, maybe what you wear when you're going to ask permission, maybe how you talk. I saw in your in one of your videos that something one of you mentioned was that you knock on the door, but then you step back a few steps so you're not intimidatingly close to the door when a, when a woman answers it and sees this big tall guy right yeah. in her face. Um, can you walk us through all the little details that you think about when it comes to properly handling that permission asking process? Yeah, so I, I guess the first step would be, you know, what you wear. We we typically wear, I mean, long pants that are somewhat nicer. Uh, I mean, you don't have to overdress or anything like that because then you just kind of look like a salesman and people yeah, crack it be presentable. <laughs> shut it in your face. But just be presentable. And, I mean, I, I'll wear a college shirt every once in a while. Um, not all the time. I, we both typically take our hats off just because you don't want your face to be covered up. Don't Don't look like you just – uh, we're tromping around in their backyard, you know, it's like you've been in the woods all day, just kind of be, you know, clean, just clean and presentable. And I mean, it's all about making them as comfortable as possible as quickly as possible, because you have like a very short window to do that before they're like, no, not, not interested and just get off my front porch. So, I mean, there's, there's different things that like we've, we've kind of learned over the years, even before we choose what house to knock on. I mean, you can tell, 
you can tell a lot about a person just by the car they drive or the flags they have on the front of their house or you know their uh their political i guess posters in their front yards so um i think you can kind of make your own inferences from there and then <laughs> just uh just you know if you can just kind of the first thing just kind of get, get them say something that gets them comfortable start a conversation about something in their yard or just like find common ground i guess um just to get the conversation going get them talking to get them kind of involved in the conversation and then um i think it's super important kind of on the, along the lines of what lee said is like present that you are very experienced in what you're asking to do on their property so a lot of times, you know, I'll start out with, Hey, like I've, I've been hunting in this area for 12 years. Like I've, I live right down the road. Um, you know, I've, I've just been trying to find a few more spots to go to bow hunt for deer. I know there's a ton of them around here. Um, you have one of the larger yeah, you're lots. Throwing all the cards. <laughs> <laughs> Keep it coming. You have one of the larger lots in the, in the neighborhood <laughs> or something. You know, I'd love to be able to do this on your property. And then they start asking questions, obviously and you just have to be prepared to answer all the questions, you know, <clears throat> they might bring up, um, like, I don't know, liability issues, or they might think you're going to shoot their dog or the neighbor's kids or something playing back there. Um, and they may, they may have questions about the actual, you know, hunting regulations. So you just have to be able to answer those questions. Um, we get it, we get it quickly, quickly and thoroughly. Yeah. So I, I would, I would agree with Drew on like, you know, having your just kind of acting like, you know, this is nothing new to you. You've been doing this for a while, but yeah. I also am a big believer in like making your own story, developing your own story. So, you know, if it's a 16 year old kid and this is his first door that he's knocked on, be honest with them. You yeah. know, you can talk about, Hey, you know, bow hunting in Atlanta or whatever city, wherever you're at, you know, it's, it's, I know it's becoming popular and, you know, I've been doing my homework. I've been really practicing a lot. And, you know, to be honest with you, this is my first time knocking on a door and I'm, I'm pretty nervous about it, but I just wanted to have a conversation with you. Like, like tell your own story. Don't, don't make something up, but like right. be honest, but, but kind of show them almost make yourself a little vulnerable to them to where it just kind of takes their guard down. It helps them kind of connect with you. So just because, you know, someone else's story is, is kind of different than mine. Yeah, we've, we've been doing this for a long time. Doesn't mean you have to like, you know, try and paint that picture that, that this is something you've been doing forever, but kind of like paint your own picture, like tell your own story, kind of however that is, just kind of connect. I think that's the biggest thing is being able to connect with that landowner where they kind of see like, hey, they're it's a good kid or, you know, you know, there could be a friendship here. Like, you know, I, I would like for this kid to, to hunt on my property. I, I think it would, as a landowner or a homeowner, like, I think it would, it would make me kind of smile to see him get a deer. Um, so that's kind of what I'd say is just like, find something that works for you and develop that. And it just takes time and it takes a lot of rejections because we get a lot of rejections and you find out what works, you find out what doesn't work and you just kind of tailor it from there uh, going forward. I mean, I think that, that first year we knocked on doors when we were 16, I bet you we knocked on at least 60 doors and one of them said, yes. It's a numbers game. And so that was, yeah. Well at that time, yeah, for sure. Numbers game. But it was like that first year was the biggest learning experience for us. 
And now that we've kind of developed our approach, like our success rate of getting someone to say yes is substantially higher. Now, the, the I guess the next question then is, so you, you how many different places like this, if you're going into a season with the kind of goals that you guys have? So if you are a, we're going to assume that you're a relatively experienced deer hunter that's listening to this and you want to try to hunt mature bucks maybe. You're trying to do that in a suburban environment. Um, but these properties are pretty small, maybe half acre, maybe five acres, somewhere around there. How many different spots like that do you guys try to have access to coming into a given season that would put you in a position where you feel good enough about having a chance at, you know, finding the kind of deer you're looking for? Mm-hmm. As many as we can. <clears throat> yeah. I mean, it's, it completely depends on, you know, what your, your goals are. We all, I mean, we always try to, the goal is to be able to get on a, a good buck, you know, early season. So we're going to go, we're going to keep searching in the summertime until we find the one that we want to hunt and, uh, and just pinpoint, you know, his, his core area. Um, and then, I mean, that'll give you, if you, if you find where he is in the summertime that you should have an opportunity early season for, you know, a couple weeks at least, uh, to have a, a chance at him. But then, you know, obviously everything changes. Um, once October rolls around, once the rut rolls around. So there's different, there's different types of areas that we will target, for different times of the season and you know if you're if you're targeting a buck during late october november like you need to have a bunch of spots to to really have a good opportunity at killing that deer especially if there's other hunters hunting that deer um i mean lee's got one right now that i don't i don't even know how many spots you have but i know you have like seven cameras out seven covert cellular cameras out for him and these deer just, you know, make their rounds. They just travel a, a loop that could be two miles. It could be 10 miles. Um, so just, yeah, the more spots you have, the better. I mean, the more you know about that deer, the, the better odds you are of getting a pattern and just being at the right place at the right time. So I, I think that's something that is different that we do that, that most people don't. And I'll kind of circle back again to that, that first spot that we got. I told you that, you know, we would always get four or five, six shooters coming through there in November. And it was like, mm-hmm. some of those deer you could tell were a little more local, showed up more often. And those were usually the ones that, you know, when we hunted enough, we'd get a chance at, but there was like, you know, two or three of those bucks where we had no clue where they were coming from. They were only there, you know, once, or twice just kind of very inconsistent and always at night and it's like well you know that deer's just that's just his behavior he's not huntable we'll, we'll never you know kill that deer he's just nocturnal or, or whatever and so like we kind of ruled those deer out and so kind of fast forwarding for example like drew had a spot where i mean it was like a it was like 190 it had to have been 190 inch deer and it was only coming at night, like the whole season. And we were just like, yeah, the deer's unkillable. He'll just, it was just our inexperience, but it was just like that, you know, mm-hmm. he's not, he's not going to, he's not killable, you know, you know, might as well go hunt a different deer. But what we do and have, have kind of learned is that that deer is showing up somewhere. He's got a, a place 
he's more comfortable with, that's more more close to where he likes to bed down, spend more of his time, and you got to go find it. So, all, all a lot of our competition and, and other hunters here in Atlanta, you know, they they have a family friend that they get to put a camera out, or you know, they live there and they put a camera out, and they have that one spot and that one spot where they get a picture of a buck, and he's you know, maybe he's showing up there pretty good a bit maybe he's just kind of really sporadic but what we do that's different than that person that just has one spot is when we when we locate that deer kind of like drew was saying we'll go get 10 other spots around it and just kind of a scatter plot in all directions from where that picture was taken of that deer and we really start kind of putting putting the pieces together on where he's spending more time we get really mobile with these deer kind of going after them moving around a lot getting places you know, 10 spots to hunt one deer as to where most guys will have, you know, their one spot and they'll, they'll get the picture of the deer and they'll just kind of ride it out that spot. Maybe it happens there. Maybe mm-hmm. it doesn't, but you know, that's, that's something we do. And I, I think that's been our biggest kind of secret that we've had to success is that we go after these deer and really find out where they like to spend time. And, and just, I think it increases our odds so much when we can really do our homework. Um, studying 10 cameras instead of just one and be like, yeah, this, this is the place where he's spending the most time. This is where we need to go after him. And that, I mean, that kind of goes back to the whole naming of the deer thing. Like it just, first of all, it makes it way easier to talk about these deer when we, when we have a name for them, instead of trying to like describe what they like the eight pointer with the kickers and the drop time or whatever, (laughs) but it also just like chasing them down like that and spending so much time, you know, getting permission and, and putting cameras out and whatnot, it just makes it so much more personal. And you just like have this attachment to this deer because you've put so much effort into it. And so it's, it's almost like they deserve a name <laughs> to, yeah. just because, you know, they're, they're a formidable opponent for sure. Like this deer could be right under your nose and still he's, you know, he's outsmarting you almost every single time. I mean, Lee's got a deer right now that he's, we know that this deer is like in this little block of woods and Lee's got him surrounded, but he's not, he only shows up like at night or in the middle of the day, just like randomly in the middle of the day. And this year, just like, he knows, he knows what's up. Like he knows when there's cameras out, he knows when we walk back there into his block of woods. So I don't know. Yeah. I mean, he he notices our camera. It's, it's kind of crazy. And, uh, you know, he, he, he's completely nocturnal, at least for now, but the only time he'll show up in daylight is like high noon, noon, one o'clock. And it's like, sorry, man, but I'm not, I'm not going to be hunting all day from <laughs> noon to one. Like one, I've got a job at two, you know, that's just kind of crazy. Cause I mean, he shows up maybe, maybe once a week, once every other week at like noon. It's like, I'd have to sit for 14 days all day just to try and get that one chance at him at noon. So I think sometimes these deer are just smarter than we give them credit for. Um, I, th- I think sometimes they really know more about what's going on than, than we really yeah. uh, understand. Yeah. So, so speaking then of that process and challenge of trying to figure out these deer a little bit better than they have us figured out, let's talk about how you end up scouting these spots and, and scouting and understanding these individual deer too. So you, let's say you, you've got permission on a bunch of these properties. Now, how do you go in there and figure out how deer are using it? How do you find these individual bucks and then 
tighten the noose a little bit on them. Walk me through all the scouting, what kind of stuff matters, what doesn't matter, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think it just depends on what time of year it is. Um, I get, we can start with early season. Uh, like we were saying before, I mean, kudzu is one thing that we look for a lot of the time in the summer. Um, just something, you know, just like anywhere. I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily just pertain to the suburbs, but a buck wants food, cover, and water. Um, so you get you need to find like in a secluded spot that's got all three of those things to where the deer doesn't have to move, you know, more than a couple acres. Um, so, I mean, we'll look for that in the summertime. A lot of times, um, it's kind of weird how these deer uh, travel and kind of pick the spots that they're going to hide in. But more and more often, I, I don't know if this is just due to hunting pressure or just, I don't know, just how these deer act, but they'll go find like the smallest block of woods in the most secluded area, even when there's, you know, a hundred, 200 acres of woods with everything they could possibly need, um, you know, within a half a mile away. Um, so they'll just, they'll get off into these little tiny blocks of woods all summer long until, you know, late October. And then they'll go into these big blocks of woods to go find does and stuff to chase around during the rut. So, I mean, I don't we'll, know. I don't know if it's like they feel like really tight, kind of bundled up, like everything's kind of, just bundled up, bundled them up in there, but Drew's right. Like, yeah, I mean, it, it can't be open woods. It's got to be like really, really thick, but sometimes super small little pockets. And it's just mm-hmm. like, I don't know if they just feel like everything around them is just kind of wrapping them up and they just feel secure in there. But I mean, and they, right, can, like, they can cover the whole area easily. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's what we look for early season. And what makes this even harder, which I want to make clear is like, you can't just go stick cameras out anywhere you want. Like you have to have permission to even go scouting on that property. So that, I mean, that increases the the time it takes by a hundred because you have to go and actually get permission before you can even know what the, you know, what the woods are like, if there's water, if there's even, you know, good deer back there. So, um, I mean, we spent spent weeks trying to get one landowner to say yes, because we thought it was a good spot. I mean, run a camera there the whole year just to find out that there was not a shooter there at all. It's like, well, that mm-hmm. couple of weeks was a huge waste of time. <laughs> not not saying yeah. there won't be something there eventually, but like, you know, sometimes, you know, a lot of these places you get are just dead ends. And that's why you got to have a lot of different things working. Um, I would say really like starting like right now is when, and even earlier to kind of answer your scouting question is we love yeah. to use mock scrapes to get pictures of deer especially bucks and our deer get, can get really territorial. So we love, and we'll, you know, bend branches down and do all kinds of stuff to get like the perfect licking branch and, and rake out just a huge scrape. And we'll put in scent and attractions and stuff like that. And, you know, that's how we get a lot of our pictures this time of year and actually have yeah. a lot of our success too, is just really kind of pissing a deer off getting in an area where he likes and using a scrape to just, you know, kind of draw him back to keep him kind of defending that little area. So, yeah. Uh, and one thing we kind that, of, we kind of, go ahead. I was just going to say that's, that's a really big tool of ours. Yeah. Um, one thing we've kind of started to figure out is a lot of times these older mature bucks, if you run, you know, a pile of corn or something, they'll come to it once once or twice 
yeah so yeah baiting bill passed this year you can hunt over bait that's kind of what um has helped us kind of realize this but we've all, we've realized it in the past is these mature mature deer know when they're getting hunted or maybe they know when they're getting pictures taken of them because they'll come to a bait pile once or twice and then they won't come back to it again at least not you know not in daylight so mock scrape is a much more natural way to kind of get pictures of deer and keep them around longer and uh keep them from being suspicious so it's just it's it's really uninvasive it's it's just yeah. really really natural uh so i know i know what your next question is going to be you want me to head you off at the pass yeah do it <laughs> how has how has the baiting bill affected y'all's deer season what's happening well, am i about right yeah that's <laughs> one of the things that in my mind <laughs> so it's been kind of weird for us this year um you know we've kind of had to almost go back to the drawing board a little bit on how learning how to kind of incorporate baiting and how it is effective, how it's not effective. And we're still trying to figure that out. Um, but some of the stuff that we've kind of learned is like, for example, the deer I'm after, he, uh, hates a pile of corn. Like he'll, kind of come to it at night every now and then but mostly he'll just kind of linger in the back he won't really come to it and i think it's just like he knows it's not natural that it was put there and that he's you know it's just not it's not right to him so he's um, automatically kind of on edge when he sees that and i've got you know i've got hunters literally not like you know a few hundred yards away or you know a couple miles away i've got a dude next door to me that's hunting Mm-hmm. And he's got feeders out. And I just, I think that he is leery of that feeder because he doesn't really go over there, but he comes to me a lot more. And what I'm doing is instead of having a feeder or a pile, like I'll kind of, I've got, we're kind of, we're still experimenting. I've got places where we're not baiting and we're running cameras on scrapes and things like that. And white oaks that we've got done, dropping. Uh, and then I've got a place where, I'm baiting, but I'm like kind of fan casting the corn out instead of like a pile. I'm just kind of throwing it out. Just like if it were falling off a tree, I think deer like to still kind of graze around and feed around instead of walking up to a big pile and just start eating out of it. So I think it's just a little more natural to them. Um, that seems to have helped me kind of get more pictures of bucks, um, and just kind of get better activity, uh, is, mm-hmm. is doing that. So, to kind of answer your question, uh, it's still kind of to be, de- well, I guess my question, uh, <laughs> it's kind of still like to be determined on exactly how it's going to affect our season. Um, you know, we went the first, what, two or three weeks now that the season's been open and we haven't killed a deer yet. So just because you can hunt over bait doesn't mean it's making it easier. <clears throat> for us at least yeah um you get younger deer that come to it but as far as like a you know five yeah. plus it's just you know and that's those, those are the type of deer we're going after it's just so far for us it hasn't helped <laughs> so so two things number one i wish more of my guests were like you and would just ask their own, their own questions they ask a question they answer their own <laughs> question they ask it i could kick back and drink a beer and have a much easier time <laughs> Um, and number two, I want to go back to, um, the camera side of things that you talked about how, 
you've ran cameras on some piles, you've ran some cameras on the mock scrapes and how the mock scrapes seem to be more natural and maybe work a little bit better. Um, I want a little more detail on the camera strategy. So are you just putting like one camera out on each little property or do you have some kind of method to the madness as far as like how many acres you want per section or anything like that and do you change that from early season to the rut or is there any other things going on there as far as your camera strategy and I guess one more I do I do this I do like these rapid fire 10 questions at once and it's probably tough on people <laughs> um, what about when you get one specific deer that you're after you, you, you put the camera out there you get Zeus on there like holy smokes this is the deer I want to hunt do you then like take your cameras from everywhere else and then blanket this one little area <laughs> Um, answer, Lee gets, answer Lee all those. Lee's room to get tunnel vision on a deer. <laughs> he, uh, when he finds that one deer that he wants, so Lee has like, I can't, I don't even know how many properties he has in Atlanta, but it's over a hundred that he has permission on. Wow. And he'll get, he'll find this one buck that he wants to kill and he'll pull all of his cameras and won't even look at other properties the rest of the season, at least until he kills that deer and just, you know, uses all his resources to, uh, to hunt that deer, which, I mean, that's a lot of times, like that's what it takes for some of these mature bucks. Um, and you know, there's, there's always getting mad and badger me cause I forget about spots I have. Yeah. I'm over here trying to find <laughs> a deer to kill and I can't find one. And he's got like all these awesome spots that he doesn't even have cameras out at. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of frustrating, but, um, but no, I mean, as far as camera strategy goes, it just completely depends on the property, you know, the layout of the property, the size, um, what you're running it over, uh, time of year. I think early season, you know, it's just, it's all about getting as many cameras out in as many different places as you can. Um, and early season, you know, running it over corn, isn't gonna, isn't gonna bother the deer. They know that they're not being hunted, hunted that time of year. Uh, or I, I guess not early season, but pre preseason, um, they'll come to a pile of corn in daylight. So <clears throat> it's, you know, you could be getting pictures of a group of bucks at one spot and then a hundred yards, 200 yards away, there's a completely different group of bucks. And, yeah. you know, you just have to c continue to move your cameras around that time of year to see everything that's out there. When, when October, like late October, November rolls around, just like Lee was saying about that first spot that we got, there's so many little uh, pockets of woods scattered through these neighborhoods that bucks hide in. And when they start moving, they just come out of the, come out of the woodwork. Like we think that we have this whole area covered with cameras and we know all the deer there. And that's never the case. Like we are always surprised when a giant buck shows up and we're like, where in the world did that deer come from? The so, perfect example of that is, is our buddy just killed a 20 pointer, believe it or not, like a week ago. And he had pictures of that deer two years ago, had just a mm -hmm. few pictures of it, never saw the deer again. For two years, the deer was just gone. And he was like, well, you know, I guess someone, he got hit by a car or, you know, whatever. And lo and behold, he shows back up this year and he's got 20 points and he, you know, successfully took that deer. But Drew was like right next to him. Drew's got spots all around him. Drew's never seen the deer. It was just like, where in the world was this deer? Where did he come from? Where was he hiding? He's 20 points. He's pretty recognizable. Um, so, yeah, I mean, they, they literally just, like, 
sometimes they're just ghosts and just vanish and we don't know that. I think that's something that intrigues us so much about them is that like, you know, sometimes when you kill a deer, you get people that message you and, and they say, Oh yeah, I had, I had pictures of them here. I was hunting with deer here. And you're like, really? Cause they're, you know, five miles from you. And, um, you know, there, there just seems to be when you can kind of put the, the missing information that you wish you had kind of along the way together. And it just, sometimes it amazes you where these deer travel from, where they come from, where they go and things like that. But, um, kind of what Drew said about like sometimes, and it's kind of circling back to your question of, you know, putting out cameras, do we try and, you know, spread them out or close together kind of sometimes we will literally put cameras. I know for, uh, this deer that I'm after, I've got cameras and some of them are, you know, a hundred yards from each other. And I get completely different activity on each of them. I get bucks on the camera a hundred yards away that I have never seen on the other one. That's a hundred yards to the east of it. So sometimes it's like, you know, very, very small amounts of movement of distance where you put it, you're going to get completely new deer. Um, so sometimes, yeah, I mean, we're putting cameras out that are a hundred yards apart. Sometimes they're two miles apart, three miles apart. So, uh, we always have kind of operated under the code of leave no stone unturned. Um, so, you know, we are not afraid to put cameras just a hundred, as little as a hundred yards apart from each other, even if it's just, you know, crossing one little neighborhood road. Um, you just get all kind of new activity, uh, from each. Yeah. Do you, yeah. do you, do you do anything different as far as your camera placement to account for there being more people walking around? Maybe, I mean, if you're putting a camera in someone's <laughs> backyard, do you worry about that or do you worry about them seeing it and being weirded out or taking it or, or does that not happen? It happens. It happens all the time. A lot. And actually one thing that's kind of helped that is we started using uh, cellular cameras. And I think when people walk across that in the woods and they see a big antenna on it, they immediately realize that we already have a picture of them. <laughs> so a lot of times they end up, end up leaving it. But I mean, we don't do this, but a lot of people will put them kind of up in trees facing down. Um, but we, I mean, we just always try to, we always try to pick a tree that's not obvious. It's not like out in the open. And there's a lot of like, we'll use like lock boxes and stuff. Yeah. And like, lock yeah, there's some the places where it's like, it's guaranteed to get stolen unless you have a lock box on it. So yeah. the um, place where this deer that I'm kind of after that, I mean, this deer should be like way over 200. Um, it's in the, it's in like the ghetto. Like it is very, very, very sketchy. <laughs> so all the cameras I have there, I have like double bolted to the tree. Uh, and we do that. We'll do the same with our stands of, of, you know, bolting them to the tree because we've, you're just getting a different dynamic in the city that, you know, you're going to have people walking across your stuff. And, um, so, you know, yeah, we, we've dealt with in the past, a lot of stuff getting stolen. Um, yeah. so we've got <laughs> in some places we've beefed up our security. Wow. And another aspect of it is you just, you don't want people knowing that you're hunting back there. I guess you, you never know who the neighbor is. I mean, if they're a huge anti hunter and they see your stand or your camera back there, you know, they could, they could call the neighbor and freak out and you lose permission. So 
just flying under the radar in every aspect um, is super, super important. Yeah, so how do you do that? I, I've seen some of your videos, like you're thinking about when you go in and out of your stands, waiting till after dark so that people won't see you, things like that. Can you elaborate mm-hmm. a little bit on how you can stealth mode hunt in the suburbs? Yeah, so first of all, I've made this mistake many times, I'm sure Lee has too, is once if you get a spot that's on a certain street and it's a good spot, um, don't don't knock on any more doors because you can knock on, you know, you may try to string a few properties together just so you have uh, room to move, but odds are someone is not going to be um, in favor of hunting and you could end up losing that spot that you already have. So sometimes that already it happens this year. Yeah, it happened to us this year on a giant deer that Kendall was hunting and uh, like we lost permission. And, yeah, and the deer's been showing up there in daylight ever since. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the first aspect. And then, you know, just uh, a lot of times we'll carry our camo, uh, just wear street clothes and put our camo on kind of like behind the house. Um, we'll try yeah, not we to park. Yeah, we'll try not to park, you know, our trucks on the street. We'll try to we'll try to get permission to pull our cars like down the driveway and park on the side of the house. There's all, there's even been times where uh, I think it was for Zeus actually, uh yeah. we drove his dad's Mercedes or something. <laughs> like in the woods. I had to borrow a car, a little Batmobile yeah. run up fly under the radar. <laughs> <laughs> so people don't see this truck sitting on the side of the road on a block of woods and be like, Yeah, hmm, I wonder what that guy's doing. And some of these spots are so precious that, like, you just do everything you can to not lose permission. Like, for for example, yeah. this deer, we call him Nine Lives. You know, uh, Kendall's actually hunting him. Deer's showing up all summer. Um, you know, season open, and he was kind of gone for a couple weeks. But then, like, boom, he shows back up. So Kendall's over there hunting, hunting, hunting. And then, I guess, a neighbor took note of his truck and basically found out he was hunting went to like i'm not kidding went to every single neighbor on that entire street in that neighborhood and made a huge deal about it i mean just completely blew it out of proportion and kendall had like two or three spots in this neighborhood and lost all of them at the drop of a hat because of one neighbor and like drew said literally the day after he lost permission this deer shows up like 6.30 p.m., broad daylight. And then, like, the next day, boom, shows up again, like, daylight, just almost, like, taunting him. That <laughs> he just lost the camera. Yeah. Brutal. Um, so we really try to treat every spot that we get with just really tender hands. And we uh, – that might have been a weird way to say it, but <laughs> we, we treat them with care because we take care of our landowner. You know, we'll – bring him gift cards or, you know, honey baked ham or kind of whatever on Thanksgiving, just stuff that, you know, they wouldn't expect you to do that really kind of locks in that they want you to be there. But two, yeah. you know, yeah. just we dress in normal clothes, like for Zeus, you know, I was afraid of losing any of these spots because that was the biggest deer we've ever hunted. And it's like, you lose one spot and then it's like, you may not get a chance at that deer. So I was leaving my bow and my bow case under these people's back deck with all my camo. So whenever we would park, we'd walk back in normal clothes, changed under their back deck by their swing set, and then walk <laughs> through the woods and get in our stand. And then coming out, 
take off the clothes, put the bow back in the case. And it was just so that we were always seen coming out, not in camo, not with a bow and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of, uh, it's, it's really important. Also, we, we don't put any hunting stickers on our trucks because if people see a truck with hunting sticker, it just raises red flags. And, um, yeah, there's kind of a lot of things we do to just try and have a small footprint as possible. So, so I'm kind of uh, skipping a bunch of steps here. So I'm going to jump to the end and then I'm going to pull us back. But what about the situation where you've shot a deer and you are now tracking it or trying to recover a deer, given all these things we've just talked about, trying to stay under the radar, trying not to tick off people who maybe don't like hunters. How do you handle that whole deal? This is where the fun begins. <laughs> yeah, so you have to have permission. Georgia, you you cannot legally you cannot legally go on someone else's property without permission, even if you've shot a deer, killed a deer, whatever. A lot of states, you know, they allow you to do that. Here, I mean, some people say you can call the game warden. If if the game warden came out there and helped you, he'd be doing you a favor. Like that is not a normal occurrence. So yeah, I mean you have to go knock on their door and get permission and and say, hey, do you mind if I retrieve this deer off your property? So uh, the Zeus story is another perfect example of that Lee, this deer died, I don't know, what, 50 yards, it's maybe uh, less than 50 yards off the property. Yeah. And Lee had to go knock on this lady's door at nine o'clock at night. And she was definitely asleep. And she came out in her nightgown. Oh, no. <laughs> and just like basically wanted Lee to, she was just like so confused. And Lee worked his magic and somehow convinced her that it wasn't a big deal. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And she said yes, but I mean, if she had said no, like it, it would be over. We'd be scrambling, trying to get maybe ask the game warden to help us out, or I mean, if if that doesn't work out, then I mean, there's really nothing you can do. Yeah, so, I mean, if that, if that lady would have said no, I can't go get that deer. Two hundred inch deer, you know, thirty yards across our property line. There's nothing you can do about it. So, you know, in, in that case. If that would have happened, we probably would have called the game warden and had him try and help out that situation. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we've, we've had some – look, this is Atlanta. It's a melting pot. Not everybody here loves hunting. And you learn that when you knock on 100 doors. We get all yeah. kind of reactions from people, anything and everything from the sun. I've, I've literally knocked on a door before. They had a giant totem pole in their front yard. I was like, it's kind of weird, but whatever. I knocked on their door, and I was like, hey, you know, gave my little spiel, and basically asked her to hunt, and she was like, she just looked at me like her jaw hit the floor and was just like, you see that totem pole? He's like, yeah. He's like, you see the top of it? Like, yeah. She goes, well, that's our, you know, some so-and-so symbol of the deer, and that, like, that is our god. That is our religion. That is our faith. You are literally murdering our God. Get the <sighs> F off my property. And she called the cops. And Whoa. I mean, you're, you're, you know, knocking on people's doors. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. But still, people call the cops on you and the cops show up and it causes a scene. <laughs> so, like, you, you just, like, you, you get all kind of reactions from people that are like, you know, I hate the deer. Kill them all. And then you get people that are like, no, that I worship here. So, 
Um, and back, and back to the question. On the even in the Zeus video, even after we got permission to re to retrieve them, you can see in the video like we're tracking without flashlights. I think Lee's using his cell phone yeah. light to follow blood, and that's because I mean there's other houses you know backing up to those properties, and if they see some some people snooping around with flashlights in the middle of the night, like they're gonna they're gonna Definitely. you know race up. And so um, you just have to be mindful of everyone around you, even if you're doing everything legally. Like you just want to draw as little attention to yourself as possible in that in that scenario. But there have been cases where. Uh, I've told this story before, but when uh, when there's a blood trail going down the middle of a sidewalk, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to fly under the radar. That's definitely happened to us before. Oh my gosh! <laughs> but you, but you know what? When deer cross roads bleeding, it's a great place to find blood. If you lose blood, just go up to <laughs> yeah. the sidewalk, just, and, and you, you know you can see them clear as day. If there's a good blood trail going across the road, and you pick it back up. Oh man. Now, what about getting a deer in, you know, from the woods into your vehicle? Do you wrap them up in a tarp or something like that and carry them out? I mean, if, if assuming you can't get your truck back to the wood edge, um, I mean, people might think you're pulling a body out. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say, we don't use tarps for that reason. This is Atlanta. And yeah. People would definitely think we're dragging a dead body out, but we, uh, we like to, um, a lot of times we'll, you know, if it's, in the evening, we'll just wait till it's like completely dark. Um, but other times we'll get our truck as close as we possibly can to the woods. And we'll kind of have a scout of like, you know, looking around, making sure nobody's looking. And then we'll just do it as quick as we possibly can. So it is exactly uh, like pulling a dead body out. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. I, quite the process it's uh yeah quite the process okay so let, let's let's rewind then back to where we were in the whole journey though so we've we've gotten permission we've ran cameras we're finding the deer we're interested in hunting now you actually start hunting these deer um and maybe maybe you can use an example like this mega deer you're hunting this year lee or, or anything you've been chasing drew how what's your mindset mm -hmm. as the season begins and you go through the year um what kind of spots are you typically keying in on? Like, are you just hunting where you get these pictures or do you focus on, all right, food sources in the early season, pinch points during the rut, kind of like guys are doing across the rest of the country. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of walk us through that year of, of hunting style strategy. Well, I mean, I think you definitely have to be cognizant of the changing food source. Um, you know, right now is when acorn trees start dropping. Um, but I mean, we're we're not hunting until we have daylight or multiple daylight pictures of that that buck. So, um, we're a know, big believer if, in that. Yeah, and that's something we kind of learned the hard way over over the years. Like we used, to, if we a long time ago, if we got like one pic, one daylight picture of a buck, we'd be in there every day and just like, you know, just waiting it out, hoping he'd show up. This season, Lee hasn't even hunted yet this season, and it's been three weeks, and. uh you know, he's just waiting on the right time to uh, to go in there but, with his little. Yeah, I think, I think you do more damage than good when you're walking yeah. in and out. You're setting up the area. It's just not the right time to kill that deer, and you're just literally. I think you're just shooting yourself in the foot if you're just going at it, you know, too prematurely. Yeah, and so I mean to answer your question, yeah, we <clears throat> this time of year, you know, 
we're going to look for white oak trees um, that are about to drop acorns or they're dropping acorns. And a lot of times, you know, the bucks will, will come to those at some point, but that doesn't necessarily mean that those bucks are going to be bedding um, or that they're going to be killable where those trees are. So the camera strategy of constantly moving them around and just covering as much area as possible really never changes. Um, the only time it may change a little bit is peak rut and you just you just want to be in a travel corridor where you're just getting as many pictures as possible um but so yeah i mean this time i, of year, I, think, you know, I think another thing is ahead. like we're, we're dealing with sometimes really tight property lines and it's like yeah the, the, you know the the property next door is the one that's got the white oaks that are falling and it's just torn up with rubs and stuff and it's like well you know they said no can't get over there so be- yeah. beggars can't be choosers in that case you know we try to there's some places where our spots are an acre drew's got a spot that's 800 acres but most of them are smaller acreages and you know you can't you don't have a whole lot of room to move around so we try to really maximize our spots as much as possible so what we'll do is, like I said, you know, we'll put in mock scrapes. I've actually done it this year just for fun to try. I've actually made rubs myself on trees just to try and show signs of another dominant buck to just try and kind of fire up that other buck in there. Um, and then we'll, we'll put in, uh, we do a lot of food plots, a lot of like wheat food plots and stuff, just really trying to maximize that little acres that you do have try and show a lot of you know deer activity there trying to draw in deer to that spot because you know you really are limited on how mobile you can be in some of these areas Mm -hmm. so trying to maximize you know kind of the cards were dealt with the property we have is is definitely you know something we try to do for sure and a lot i mean a lot of times like in a lot of areas there are acorn trees everywhere and there's a ton of yeah this it's not flat land like Atlanta is pretty, pretty hilly and there's tons of creek bottoms, little draws and stuff. So, you know, a 200 acre area could have five different little streams that the deer could drink out of. It could have, you know, a hundred different acorn trees. So it's, it's pretty tough to pinpoint them based on just knowing where like the food source is. Cause it could be, it could be anywhere. Um, and that just, you know, lends itself again to just covering as much, as much territory as possible. Yeah, kind of going back to, like, how limited you are in some of these places. That first year that I told you about, Charlie, that was, like, a 180-inch nine-pointer, I watched him opening day of deer season eat around in broad daylight at 100 yards, and there was nothing I could do about it because I didn't have have the right permission there, and he wasn't coming to my other areas. So, you know, sometimes you really are just kind of, limited there there's just places you can't access and i feel like these these deer know that and that's kind of some of the places they hone in on and that's why you know a lot of these deer you know find these safe areas and can get to the right age is that they've kind of found that area where no one can get to and sometimes that's just it is what it is just you can't get in there so you maximize what you can where you are uh, to when he starts moving, hopefully he'll spend some more time kind of in your little block that you've got permission. So speaking mm-hmm. of those kinds of things, Lee, I've seen you, you use these mini plots that like you mentioned there where it looks like on, in someone's back five acres or whatever, you've got this little quick and dirty, tiny food plot. Can you talk about 
how you get that in there and how that helps you? So what really helps is having a, a hose that runs from their house that you can water their food plot <laughs> at any time. Um, we spend a lot of time kind of manicuring our food plots. We'll mostly just plant wheat. Um, and we, you know, go in and kind of rake up and blow out an area. Um, we, we'll grow pretty much anywhere. Um, so we just kind of throw it out and it'll, it'll take. And, um, yeah, literally I've, I've like, I've got those, uh, what are those hoses that like expand and then shrink when you're not using them? They're kind of expensive, but you know what hoses I'm talking about? I don't think I do. They're like, they're like retractable. They're like like <laughs> yeah. They're like shrivel up when you're not using them and, they, and they're super lightweight. And then when you hook them up and have water coming through them, they'll like expand, like balloon out. <laughs> um, anyways, the point of that is that like, I'll have, I have like four of those that I can connect and I have like, you know, 200 feet of hose that I can, you know, run from, I'll, I'll just keep it in my truck and, you know, I can run it from someone's, uh, back water faucet and run it all, all the way down through the woods, down to my food plot, sit there. And, you know, if it's not getting much rain, I'll sit there and, you know, water it once a week, keep it coming in really good. Um, and we also use, uh, leaf blowers, making sure we keep all the leaves out. Um, it's kind of funny. I mean, we could, we could talk about a million different things, but you know, when we, I always see more activity when I take a leaf blower and blow in, blow out the food plot. I just think it gets like fresh earth in the air. Just like some, I don't know, just fresh kind of dirt smell going on. But it's like every time we blow off our food plot, it's like that next day or that night and that next couple of days following, like we always see a lot more activity. Do you ever so purposely like do that? Yeah. Yeah. For Charlie, like there was a couple times where <laughs> we like literally we'd go in with a leaf blower. We'd be in camo and Drew would climb up in the tree and I'd take a leaf blower and be blowing the food plot off <laughs> and walk up the hill, put the leaf blower down and come climb up in the deer stand. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what, I've, I've never heard of Mark Drury doing something like that. You guys are one of a kind. Suburban <laughs> tactics, baby. Suburban tactics. You, know? <laughs> you, uh, didn't you have an encounter with Charlie while you were blowing the plot off, like in the middle yeah, of the this, day? Yeah, this was crazy. Up on you. So I was, this was like, Charlie has was gone for like, this is October-ish, late October. He was gone for like a week, like kind of getting down. I'm like, man, he's not showing up. I go in there to blow off the food plot. I put my leaf blower down, and it's like kind of going down the hillside. And it's like as soon as I turn my leaf blower off, I look up, and he's like, 15 yards behind me just staring at me wow and i didn't I, I don't know how long he was standing there i don't know what was going on but like i turned around and looked at him and it's like as soon as we made eye contact it was like he just had a huge middle finger pointing at me and just like bounded off <laughs> and we had been hunting him pretty hard at that point and he was just yeah. totally just destroying us <laughs> showing he was up playing we there. Yeah. so man um there's not a if I, if I were to say, like, it's funny. If I were to say, like, there's a sound that reminds me of deer season, 100% it's, it's roaring leaf blowers. <laughs> That's the best thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Every single time we're hunting, we're hearing leaf blowers going on. Gosh. That's terrible. <laughs> Especially in the filming aspect of it. Like, you can't film interviews 
<laughs> all around you is <laughs> you can't you can't hear deer walking around like you just uh, have to you have to rely on your eyesight because you know the deer could be right under you and you can't even hear it wow another great thing we have to our advantage here is that like sometimes dogs will let you know when deer are coming yeah <laughs> so like if, if people have dogs in their backyard and they see deer walking by like you know we'll we'll hear a dog like a hundred yards away just go roar, 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 roar. Like all right, here he comes. Here he comes. Sure enough, <laughs> here comes here comes some deer coming right by some over there. Oh man! So so this brings me to then another thing I've been wondering about when watching what you guys are doing and hearing about it is how human activity impacts things. And then so this is a two part question. Part one: How do other humans impact your hunting? So how do the neighbors and people blowing their yards and doing landscaping and playing with their kids in the backyard? 80 yards away or 100 yards away, how does that impact your hunting? And then number two, because there's all this other stuff going on, does that impact how much you can get away with? So because these deer are used to people walking around and playing around and making a lot of noise, do you not worry about the pressure you're putting on these deer as much or your exits and and entryways, all that kind of stuff? How does all that work? Yeah, so that's definitely something that we've kind of learned over the years. The hard way. Yeah, definitely the hard way. I mean, we used to just kind of go in. Yeah, if we have a five-acre block of woods, maybe a creek bottom, we used to go in there and find the perfect tree, you know, on the, the best trail and go all the way in that block of woods and, and set up shop. Now we've kind of learned that these deer, like the closer that you get to these, that you stay to these houses, um, I guess the more their guard is down. But that so like if you're i mean if there's kids playing in someone's backyard where they're always playing you know if they're like in the grass area or whatever and they're not in camo they're not um i swear deer can tell like if you're in normal clothes or camo and if you're if you're just talking at like a normal uh voice level or trying to like sneak around they can tell the difference and um i think they have like this this line behind you know houses where they are used to normal human activity, but then as soon as you step over that line, they're like, okay, wait a second, you're not supposed to be back here. Um, so we've kind of, we've kind of figured out, you know, how to flirt with that line and use that to our advantage. So definitely I think, I mean, I, I don't have a ton of experience hunting big woods. I mean, like we said, I have spots that are 800 acres. My parents had a, I've had a farm for a long time. Um, but I mean, I would say these deer, when you get into their woods, which could only be, you know, a couple acres, they are just as skittish and just as wary as any other deer, you know, outside the suburbs. But if you can kind of like flirt with that line of, um, normal human activity, then you can, you can definitely use that to your advantage. We get busted in the tree all the time, Yeah. whether it's deer seeing our movement or, you know, getting our scent. We, we pay attention to our, our wind a lot, but we get busted all the time. Um, so these deer are not, you know, I have friends that are like, oh, you know, you don't even have to worry about scent in Atlanta. They're so used to human scent. Well, that's not true at all. Not true. <laughs> not true. They, they know what a human scent is and they know where it's appropriate to smell it. But when you're in the middle of the woods and they smell it and they can't find you, they're gone. They know when something's different. And if you're walking around, and a backyard and normal clothes, you know, they won't pay you too much attention. But if you're walking around in camouflage, they know it's different. They are gone. Um, so 
access for us is huge. Uh, we, like Drew said, we kind of used to get down in the middle of the, you know, the best place we could, but what we realized we were doing was we were leaving so much scent going in and out and in and out that the deer just stopped using that area. So we've really learned, try to like have as uh, our, keep our footprint in the deer woods as small as possible. So try and keep our, you know, distance to and from the stand that, uh, you know, as, as small as possible, kind of going, trying to, trying to walk in areas where the deer aren't going to be using as much, just trying to get in quiet, minimal presence, slip out quiet, um, you know, minimal presence. So th- these deer absolutely know when there's a lot of t- human activity in their territory and they don't like it. Um, that being said, one thing that we do, we have done and we did, we do it this year we've done it this year is that, you know, if we get busted in the tree and they don't know what it is or what's going on, or, you know, they just know that it's danger and they've blown out and they're, if they're still kind of lingering around and and we're going to get down from the sand, uh, and it's like in the evening, it's getting dark, we'll climb down and, and immediately we'll start talking to each other, walking out of the woods. Because I, I think that, these deer are so used to hearing people talk on their back deck and, you know, yell and scream at the kids, whatever, that they're used to that. And they've kind of hopefully associate talking and things like that with something that's not dangerous, not something that's trying to, if you're quiet and slipping out of the woods, they're like, something's quiet. It, it might be stalking me, it's acting like a predator. A coyote doesn't go running up to a deer, you know, saying, Hey, look at me, here I am just, you know, kind of, talking the whole time it's slipping up quiet so you know if we get busted and we're climbing down like we'll immediately just start talking to each other and hopefully they kind of associate us just with you know what they've heard on people's back decks and stuff and in hopes that it kind of you know minimalizes that predator type you know presence in that area um but like, you know, we have deer that find us in trees and we'll have to pull our stands down and, and get in a dip, completely re- relocate because they know where you're at and they'll check it and all that stuff. So, um, <clears throat> it's still Atlanta, it's still the suburbs. There's things that we do, um, that play to our advantage, like talking and things like that. But, um, they definitely are still wild animals and they've learned to adapt here, um, and survive, especially these older mature bucks. These, these mature bucks have, have zero tolerance for people getting in their turf. The does and younger bucks and stuff, they're a little more tolerant, like they'll come back. But, you know, if we, if we have a deer, a mature buck, bust us in a stand or send us or something, like forget about it. Just go find somewhere else to re- relocate or reset up on that deer. Yeah. This, uh, this kind of acting like a normal neighborhood person strategy that you talked about when you're leaving the stand – do you ever do that during the middle of the day when you're like trying to scout a new property or maybe you have to hang a new stand? I feel like I remember seeing this maybe in like your Bane series, you're hunting this buck. And I feel like I remember you walking into some new property you got permission on Oh yeah. and yeah. you're talking and filming and like, all right, this is the tree we got to hunt. And I'm sitting there thinking, holy smokes, it's the middle of the season. They're walking around hollering and hanging stands. But <laughs> it, it kind of makes sense that maybe you would do that on purpose because to your point, yeah. they differentiate between the Definitely. two different types of two different types of activity it's it depends again we're like trying to flirt with that line of where they're used to human presence and most of the time you know 
the spot where, that you're talking about where he's hunting Bane, I mean, <clears throat> that was like right in someone's backyard, basically. So the deer most likely was not bedding down within the sound distance from there. But yeah, I mean, scouting, I mean, we're not wearing camo and sneaking around and stuff. Like the deer are used to kids and stuff walking through the woods every once in a while. Um, so that's de- definitely something that we I can know the, I know the clip it. you're talking about with the Bane episode. And, and yeah, you're right. So that was, we pulled up to the spot. It's basically just like a, just a hardwood ridge. And, um, I remember I said, you know, I'm going to get out of the truck and walk up in normal clothes. I think I had, you know, binoculars. I was looking. Oh yeah. And that, that was in the case that if he was bedded there or if there was deer there, you know, hopefully they would kind of look at us and kind of ease on off Mm -hmm. instead of us trying to sneak to the stand first in camo and having those deer see us and just completely blow out of there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, there are some cases where like I walked up in normal clothes, they see it, you know, there was some construction going on in houses and stuff there. So they say, see people there a lot, um, to try and, you know, push some of those deer out cause they would bed like right under the stand. Yeah. That was um, right before we got to the stand, wasn't it? So you walked up yeah, there yeah, right. And then you came back and we changed and then got yeah, the stand. And and that's, that's actually the night that we killed them, right? Yep. Man, that was a heck of a deer. (laughs) That was a great looking buck you guys were able to get on. So obviously what you guys did worked. Um, So back to this whole idea of these deer being understanding of a certain level of a certain level of human activity. And it seems like there's ways you can take advantage of that while still obviously still needing to be careful. But does this also allow you when you are hunting on that that flirting with that edge, that edge where it's okay versus not okay. Does that allow you to hunt certain spots more than maybe someone might be able to otherwise? I mean, I feel like lots of times when I'm talking to guys that are hunting these rural farms, you know, there's not a lot of people out there ever. The pressure is very, very low. They oftentimes we talk about, you know, that first sit is your very best chance. Then it's going to go down significantly after that because they pick up on that human scent and activity very quickly. You just have a time or two Mm -hmm. in these kinds of scenarios where you're hunting the edge of that human activity line. Can you find those right spots you can hunt over and over and over as long as you play your cards right and get away with it because they're used to some of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, there's definitely you know differences between it, advantages and disadvantages in the suburbs versus you know hunting big woods, and that's probably that's definitely one of them. Um, depends and, depends on where you know, your stand it, is, though. Yeah, if you have to be in the right. You have to have your, your stand set in the right spot for sure. Well, if your stand's by the house, yeah, I think you can get away with more. But if it's like you know a, a place where we're getting in the in the thick of it with them, then no. I would say that it's yeah. the exact same scenario that your first sit is definitely your best odds. And that's, yeah. that kind of goes back to why we study cameras so much like we do and, and not hunt until that time is right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so, Drew, I don't know if you want to elaborate on that at all. but Well, no, no, I totally agree with that. Like you have to, you have to follow, you know, those rules of where the deer are used to the human activity. And that goes for if you're in the suburbs or you're not. Um, and I mean, in the, you know, the deer in the suburbs are more used to human activity in certain areas than they would be in the big woods. But in the big woods, you have the advantage of being able to 
you you know you have a lot more room to work with and a lot more room to play the wind you know different trees to set up in and in the suburbs a lot of times you have if if you're lucky you have that one tree that you can choose from and you just have to make it work so i think it's a lot of give and take yeah yeah for sure now based off all of this i can kind of assume the answer to my next question but what about other people messing up your hunts? Let's say someone decides to go walk their dog behind the house and walks all around you, or, you know, some kids come running through. Is that the kind of thing that obviously it spooks off the deer right at that moment, but you're like, okay, we'll sit it out because they're used to that deer will come back through eventually. Maybe once these people move off, is that the case? That happens uh, yeah, think- quite a bit, actually. Um, but I, I think it's more of a thing where like it may spook them off for that time being, but the next day is a fresh day and they don't really care or remember about, you know, that person walking their dog in the back of, in the, in the woods. Cause that's just something they've kind of come to know. So it's not, it's not, if it's something they've seen, yeah, it may spook them off for the time being, but it's not going to be something that's going to be like a permanent memory in their mind where they're like i'm avoiding that area something where it's like you're in a stand and they sent you or they they spot you in the stand and see you there that's something that stands out to them and and would be something where they would definitely like vacate that area and not come back um but drew you i mean you can tell the story about wilbury and that pit bull that came and chased them off (laughs) yeah yeah i mean it's like yeah we have dogs run up on us pretty often in a stand and uh, I think it was four years ago, I was hunting this buck that I called Wilbury. He's just a, an awesome, just slick eight-pointer. Um, it was, I think it was the first or second week of the season. And this deer was in there just like every day. He he kicked out all the other bucks in his basher group and was, he had made like, I don't know, five or six scrapes in this little tiny area. <clears throat> and he was coming in every day. Lee and I were hunting. Um, I think we had, we had like two encounters with him right at dark. Uh, I actually shot at him and missed one night and I was out there again the next day and, uh, he was coming in, like he was walking straight under my stand and maybe 10 yards away, I was full draw about to, uh, just waiting for him to turn broadside. And all of a sudden the neighbor's dogs, a couple of pit bulls came running through the woods and chased them off. <laughs> and <laughs> like i think that's if they're again like if they're used to stuff like that like if they if that's a natural occurrence it's going to scare them off for a little bit but they're going to come back if it's not some sort of like life-threatening thing thing for them so i think i ended up killing that deer a couple evenings later in the same uh the same general area so wow. um it just completely you know it de- depends what they associate um that presence with yeah that makes sense that makes sense, man. So, so you're, you're going in and getting permission on all these different places that maybe more guys don't tend to, you are scouting them out. You're running a ton of cameras to find where these older, bigger deer are. You're zeroing in on them. Once they get daylight active, you're doing little things like putting these mini plots, running min, mock scrapes, um, being careful about how you're getting in and out and making sure that you're on that line between safe and not safe for deer. So you can take advantage of it. You're doing all these things. Is there is there anything else that you're doing during the hunting season or otherwise that you think is making you guys uniquely successful that's allowing you to have, you know, 
Boone and Crockett class bucks coming out of the suburbs of Atlanta that we haven't touched on yet? Uh, I think something is probably like, you know, we, we've talked about waiting for the right time to be in the tree, but once it is that right time, uh, the, probably one of the biggest things for us is just, we spend so many hours in a tree sitting there, you know, waiting for it to happen. We can spend more time in a tree. We're blessed in that way, uh, than most people. And, you know, for example, Bain last year, over the two years of hunting him, I think we sat like over 60 times. Um, and so I don't know how many hours it was that we actually spent in a tree hunting that deer. Um, and then, you know, for Zeus, I think we sat like, you know, 25 times or so, 25, 30 times. Um, and, you know, finally finished the story on that deer. But it's like, I think the biggest thing is, once it's the right time, you got the right setup. Everything's right. It's just spending time in a tree and, and just as much as you possibly can, and not missing that one opportunity that that deer presents itself. Uh, I think that's something that you know. It's it's yeah. You know, your your first sit's gonna be your best sit when the time's right and everything like that. But when October, you know, late October, November rolls around, it's all about being in the tree as much as possible because sometimes you know that that buck of a lifetime that are that they're here only presents that one chance and it's not missing that opportunity yeah um drew i don't know if there's anything else you can think of but i think that's one of the big things is that we just get to spend so much time in a tree yeah and i mean we touched on it a little bit but these bucks like especially during the rut these bucks travel a ton and one good example is we had pictures of the same buck on two different cameras, seven miles apart in the same night. Wow. Um, and that's crossing like a bunch of heavily trafficked roads, like four lane roads, um, neighborhood roads and all sorts of stuff. So, <clears throat> you know, you, yeah, you say your first sit is always your best chance, but I mean, there's also a very good chance that, that the buck you're hunting is not in that block of woods, you know, those first 15 times that you sit. So it could take, um, you know, a week and a half of sitting there before you catch him on that leg of his, uh, of his loop and, you know, whether or not have... he, he get... Go ahead. I was just say whether or not, I mean, he, he may come through that one time, but he might may not even give you a, an opportunity that one time. So then you have to wait again for him to do his, his full circle and come back through yeah. again. So we also have like for Bane and the same with, you know, the deer that we're hunting this year is like, we have three or four different sets of stands that we've hung. And a lot of times, you know, we have these covert cellular cameras. So it's like, if we wake up, we're planning to hunt the next morning and we wake up in the morning, it's like, where was he seen last? So when we sit, you know, 60 times in a, a two-year span for these deer, sometimes it's, it's not necessarily in the exact same spot or the same stand. It's like we kind of read where his last activity was and kind of, you know, if we saw him over at spot A, we'll go to spot A. But if the next night, you know, he seems to have moved over to spot B, we'll go over to spot B where we've got our other stand hung. So we're constantly kind of adjusting, reading where, you know, getting kind of real-time information is unmatched. That, that is probably yeah. something that is, you know, our game changer is getting real-time information 
on deer activity, where he's at, where he was last seen, things like that. And also not having to go in the woods to check these cameras. You're minimizing your scent, but just knowing in real time is, I mean, you, you cannot replace that. You cannot beat it. Yeah. You know, on the, on the, the, the opposite side of that though, do you guys see any kind of like annual patterns emerging? Lots of times you hear guys say that they notice that this buck seems to show back up in this little area first week in November every year, first week in October every year, and you can start using that historical data. It seems like with these deer yeah. you follow multiple years, that might be the case. Have you been able to do that? Absolutely. That's, that's actually a really good question because that's something that I wouldn't have, I guess, thought of, but... I told you, like, sometimes we'll have pictures of these deer for, like, four or five years before we actually hunt them. So we've, we've already built so much history around that deer of, of where he likes to spend what time that we can actually head deer off. So Bain last year, uh, we had an early season encounter with him. And after that, it was like, you know, we were like, he's not coming back here after that happened. We know where he's going, though, to chase his does. So we completely pulled out of that area, relocated, and like clockwork, you know, second or third week of October, you know, here he is four miles away chasing does. And the same with Kendall and that deer that he lost permission at that we told you about, that like 180-inch deer. Mm -hmm. uh, he knows where that deer goes in November, late October, November. So he's already heading him off. But history – and knowing these deer's tendencies is, is also something that's just, you know, mm -hmm. huge, huge, huge key. And a lot of times, like on this deer that I'm hunting this season, which I've watched for five or six years, like I know, I know where he goes, but I'm only, I'm still very limited on where I can actually hunt. So I knew that I had a small kind of window of opportunity early season, which I wasn't able to capitalize. And now I know that he kind of just roams around throughout the middle of the season and I, there's not much I can do about it. Um, besides, you know, run a covert camera and, and hope I can catch him, you know, just stopping by in the middle of the season. But I do know that he shows up at a different spot in January and when he's there, he's like clockwork. So, you know, I may know where that deer is and I may have a bunch of history with him, but that does not necessarily mean that, you know, it's a, just a, um, that it's game over. Like I'm going to have to most likely have to wait until January to, uh, to have a, sh a shot at this year. So yeah. that's definitely a huge, huge advantage. Okay. So I've taken a lot of you guys' time. We're pushing two hours already coming up on it. Um, so and I feel like we've only scratched the surface. I know it's, it's crazy how quickly this goes and how much more I'd like to talk yeah. about, but I guess I want to leave you guys with one last prediction that I want from each of you. You're each, it sounds like you're each after a buck. Sounds like Lee's got a 200 plus drew. I'm not sure what kind of deer you're chasing, but I'm sure it's something that, that make my jaw drop. Um, <laughs> if, if you kill these two deer, I'd like you to predict when and how you would expect it to happen. If, if you were to look back and say, yeah, I killed that deer, paint me the scenario in which you think that would happen. So Drew, you just said it'll probably happen yeah. in January. Um, but, but flesh out how you think that if it was going to happen, this would be it. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's one of two things. Like I said, it's going to be a crapshoot um, late October, November. I mean, he, 
the spot that I have permission is between two big blocks of woods that it's impossible to get hunting access to. Um, and so he passes through, um, my little block of woods, which is probably five acres, but he doesn't necessarily hold up there. So I am, I am feeding in there and I'm holding a group about of about five or six does. And there's a chance that he passes through and locks down on a doe in November in that block of woods. So I'll, I'll have cameras out, um, obviously all year long. And if he does that, if he shows up, I'm going to get in there and hunt him, but that's going to, I mean, that'll be, you know, it's not very high odds. So most likely I'll just have to wait it out and hope that he will not get shot or hit by a car. And I think January, I'm going to say January 12th is when he's going to show up at my, uh, my late season spot. And he's going to start coming to most likely he's going to start coming to corn since corn is legal now. And it'll take me maybe, I don't know, three or four hunts to get them because once, I mean, once they get on that late season food source, they really don't have a whole lot of other options besides landscaping. So, um, they get pretty predictable that late season. And actually we didn't mention this, but the season in the suburbs has for years has run a month longer than the rest of the state. Um, it's changed now, but for a long time, the rest of Georgia closed, uh, at the end of December and the suburbs go all the way through Jan- through January. So, they kind of, I think they kind of let their guard down those last two weeks of the season. So that's my, my prediction there on that book. All right. Sounds like a good plan. What about you, Lee? I'm kind of chuckling to myself that Drew brought up something we hadn't really talked about, but November, our enemy number one is definitely mom's soccer vans <laughs> strolling down the street. That's our biggest competition in some areas. Oh man. And, and we've had it, we've had it go down that way for us several times, but, um, yeah. So I'm after two deer right now. One of them is like, I don't know how big he is. He's giant, typical. He's definitely over 170. He's the one that I've got like seven cameras out for. Um, he actually just showed up this morning for the first time in like a while of, of hunt, what I would call huntable hours, like in the morning or the evening when I'd be sitting there instead of just middle of the day. I'm in this deer's. He's still kind of in his summer area. He's actually still with his running buddy. Once probably the third or fourth week of October hit, this deer travels for miles. He is a complete, just, he's completely random. I hope it doesn't come down to that point. So what I'm hoping for and what I think is my game plan is, is that while he's still in his summer-ish area, I'm really utilizing scrapes right now because he's really getting all the pictures I have of him. He's got his head up in the scrapes and he's getting really defensive of them. I'm going to continue to work that against him before his pattern changes and he starts chasing does all over the place. Because once that happens, it's just, you know, it's, it's going to be a complete gamble. I'm hoping there's going to be a little window beforehand where we get some cooler weather he hasn't left that area. He's hitting these scrapes, and I think it's going to go down um, before November. So hopefully, like in the next next week, week and a half, I think it could go down with this deer. For the 200 inch deer, um, right now I know that this deer is in a certain area, and it's a big area. Uh, I'm keying in on a place, and it took me a really long time to get permission here, and I actually just confirmed permission yesterday. Um, 
there are tons of does. I mean, like like thirty or forty does that are coming through this section. I'm I'm in. I'm betting that when November rolls around, I probably won't see this year until November. But when November rolls around and all these all these does start coming in the heat, I guarantee you that this buck's going to show up in this area, dogging all these does. So, and that's assuming he I, makes it that long, because a lot of people yeah, know about this deer. There's, there's there's like 15 people hunting this deer at least. Wow. <clears throat> so, if he makes it to November, I'm I've got all I need. Beca- just because I'm not seeing him and other bucks right now, I'm completely fine with that because I'm in the perfect area where I know if I'm a, a mature buck, this is the place that I would want to be. There's plenty of, plenty of poontang to chase around here. So, um, the beauty of, of this is you can edit that out if you want, right? I don't know <laughs> yeah. if you can say that. <laughs> you can say whatever you want. <laughs> um, so I think, I think that if it were to go down with that 200, it would be in the heat of November. Um, this other, typical i think it's going to be really hard to kill him in november because he's going to be traveling so far um so i think it'd be october when he's hitting scrapes or that late season window when he keeps back and keeps back on the food so all right my prediction there well those are good predictions and and hopefully when those predictions come true we'll have to get you guys back on maybe one of the radio episodes (laughs) to describe uh what was going on and how it all how it all happened. Hopefully you just describe exactly what you just did. So yeah, <laughs> it never goes that way, but <laughs> at least you get a plan in place to go for it. Um, yeah. man, this has been really, really interesting, really unique. So this is fun for me. And, uh, if folks want to follow along with what you've got going on, how your seasons are going, your future videos and all that, where can they find that stuff? Yeah. So all of our videos are posted on Facebook um, and YouTube and our Facebook is seek one productions. It's S E E K O N E. Um, they're also aired on Mossy Oaks, Facebook page and nomads Facebook page. And then to keep kind of keep up with the daily, uh, of us is uh, Instagram is the best place to go. Um, it's seek. And then the number one, instead of spelled out seek one productions at seek one productions. So that's what we post on most. Um, and kind of what we're doing with the videos this year is we, we've already released one is the Nashville episode. And then from there, I mean, we're producing episodes per kill. So we try to, we try to get them out within, you know, 45 days or so of the kill. Um, so right now, I mean, like we said, none of us have killed a buck yet, but so we've got nothing in the works, but hopefully we start putting some down here soon. And uh, you can expect to see some videos, you know, shortly after that. So, Drew, I don't know if you want to, before we go, uh, kind of bring the correlation to our Seek One name. I think it just has some meaning to it and kind of why we have that name. Yeah, we can do that. Um, Yeah, so, again, follow our Instagram. Kind of, Lee and I uh, are both pretty strong Christians. We went to Christian high school. And so kind of what we're trying to do is, is use this platform to, to glorify God and to just kind of spread his name. Um, and this season through our Instagram, every Sunday, we're kind of doing like a little mini sermon um, and just kind of doing a, a faith walk from beginning to end and just trying to make as big of impact as we possibly can um, on the hunting community. And 
the name Sequon actually comes from a seeking like one specific buck. You know, we, like we've talked about, we build this story about around one buck. Um, and then also just seeking, you know, one God, Jesus Christ. So that's really, that's one of our big motivations for doing this. So, um, you know, if, if you're into that, that's awesome. And we hope you follow us. And if you're not, I, I just hope that you, uh, you guys go on our Instagram and kind of read our posts from the last few Sundays and follow along and, and kind of just ask the hard questions and maybe start that journey. So we get a lot of questions of, of how we kind of came up with Seek One. So we like to try and yeah. bring it all around for people that ask. So very cool. Very cool. Well, uh, you guys are doing great work. Um, not only, you know, you've got a great, sounds like you got a great mission behind what you're doing, but uh, you've got great deer that you're chasing, a unique situation, but the quality of the work too is is very impressive. I can see that you were inspired by guys like, you know, Donnie Vincent and the crew, the crew at Sigmanta or Heartland Bowhunter. It seems like you took that and you've you put your own spin on it and, and really putting out work that's top notch. So to anyone listening, well, I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. I think anyone listening, I'm sure you found this interesting and I'm sure you're going to enjoy those videos. So uh, head on over and check those out. So Lee and Drew, thank you for joining me and uh, good luck this season. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks for having us on. And that is a wrap, folks. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this one. I will just reiterate a couple of the quick things I mentioned at the top, that being uh, the new season of Meat Eater. That's on Netflix. Make sure you check that out. Uh, Also, with the new company, Meat Eater Inc., you will be finding all of my new Wired Hunt content on that new website. So that's TheMeatEater.com. That's where my new articles are going to be. That's where my new videos are going to be in addition to YouTube. That's where the new podcasts are going to be in addition to your podcast apps and everything. And on top of what I'm putting out there, there's also content from Steve Ranella. There's content from... Ben O'Brien, April Vokey, Pat Durkin, Eduardo Garcia, a whole bunch of other people. Um, the team is growing rapidly with some of the, the best and the brightest folks in the hunting and fishing world. So I hope you'll check that out. I hope you enjoy it. And until next time, thank you so much for your time, your attention, and your support. And stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.